Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Best Fiends, Mint Mobile, Miller High Life, The Great Courses Plus, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Five days after the release of this episode, it will be August 28, 2020 the 25th anniversary of the first U.S. broadcast of a special on Fox television called Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction. According to Wikipedia, millions of people watched it the first time, and Fox aired it two more times to higher and higher ratings. If you're old enough to remember when it ran, you probably remember exactly where you were when you saw it. It was some of the most stunning footage ever shown on TV, And if it was authentic, which many people thought it was, and some still do actually, it was the most significant film in human history. It was proof that aliens were real. And not only that, the United States had captured at least one and conducted an autopsy on it. The anchor for this film was the 1947 crash in Roswell, New Mexico. The backstory associated with it connected it to an anonymous cameraman who was supposedly there and through a series of unusual events had managed to hang on to a couple of canisters of the original film. And he had since sold them to a man named Ray Santilli, who proceeded to license it all over the world to the tune of millions. By now, almost two billion people have reportedly seen it. It's up there with the Patterson-Gimlin film and the Zapruder film of JFK's assassination. It's hard to say how many of those two billion people think it shows something unexplainable. But like most legendary tales, the story behind this one is even more amazing than the film itself. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I come from a different school of thought, which is the psychology of magic, which is why this film is possible. It isn't showing you what you see, it's showing you what you think you saw, and you believing what you think you saw. Spiros Malaris. Join us tonight for a journey deep into the story of the 1995 found footage known as Alien Autopsy. And we're back. With the way I usually say, and we're back. And then I usually say, that we are, which I'm <laughs> going to go ahead and say, that we are. No, usually you say, stop goofing around, just say the line. <laughs> just That's say what you line. usually say, yeah. Folks, there's an unusual uh, request here for tonight's show. If you really want to follow this story closely and stay on top of it, you're probably going to need to take a look at what we're referring to, which is the alien autopsy <laughs> footage. Now, two billion people have seen it, but if you're one of those folks that hasn't, you can find it online, and right now, uh, I know it's on, I have Amazon Prime, so it's there. Mm-hmm. If you look up Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, that is up there as two episodes. The one episode is the original Fox special that you'll hear us talking about a lot tonight, and then the second episode is just the unedited autopsy footage, which is 18 minutes or so. That's probably what I would watch if you really wanted to follow along with the story and understand it. So um, we'll try to have links. If we can find some more links here for the show notes that uh, will take you directly to it. If we can find free versions, we'll put those up in the show notes as well. Also, and I know a lot of people are hearing that and saying, well, I'm not going to sign up for Amazon Prime. If you go to Amazon, you might be able to rent it there, but also you can see clips of it 
embedded with different shows. And that's really what happened to a lot of this footage. It got embedded in other shows. So as we mentioned before, the one show movie, and we'll have links to these, of course, but if you go on YouTube, you search for one show movie, Spiros himself put up that clip and it's about four minutes, 39 seconds. It explains his position. It shows some clips in there. And also that uh, Eamon investigates. That's also available in its entirety, I believe, that episode in four parts for free on YouTube. Yes. And that'll also have uh, shots in there. So you, you'll you get the idea. But if you want to see the whole thing, yeah, mostly available on Amazon Prime. Uh, well, you know what? Tonight's show is pretty amazing and not for the usual reasons. But uh, first, a couple of quick things. The Kexberg shirt that we talked about has been designed, folks. Yay! Yay! Our graphic artist, Tommy Beaver, has created an amazing shirt for the 2020 Kexberg UFO Festival and the Kexberg Volunteer Fire Department, and it's on sale now in our store. And it is super cool, seriously. Uh, well, of course, the 2020 Kexberg UFO Festival was canceled due to COVID-19, but that didn't stop us from making a cool shirt. Yes, the festival is sadly canceled, and I gotta say, our graphic artist, Tommy, really outdid himself. I also want to make it clear to everyone that he donated his time and the design, mm -hmm. so that's his contribution to this fundraiser. The theme for this year's shirt is officially it never happened because <laughs> you know the the festival yeah officially the the festival never happened we're, right. we're not saying though the event itself the incident never happened no we're not saying that but there are people in the no. government that probably do say that <laughs> well they, they say they found nothing yes i mean all that searching and that. we didn't put anything out of track folks don't worry about it exactly uh, but no that was very clever of you because it, it can be taken both yes. ways well, um, anyway, here's the thing about this. This is a charity shirt, folks. Every dime above cost we make on this one is going to the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department. So if you want a super cool shirt and also want to help them recover some of that revenue they lost this year from having to cancel the festival, get to our store right now and get it ordered right away. Yes, just go to astonishinglegends.com and click on store. It's on the top of the menu there. Just click on on the word store and it will take you to our main page for our merch. And there you will see the shirt. So act now because these will be printed to order and the first run is only going to be available for six weeks. But if there's further interest, we'll consider a second run. But that's where we're at right now. So uh, head over to the store and get this limited edition charity shirt now at astonishinglegends.com. And if you live near Kecksburg, we're actually going to be sending Ronnie at the fire department a box of shirts as well so that they can sell those locally. Okay, it's now time to really dig into some dead aliens. Wait a minute. I don't literally. know if that's appropriate. Yeah. All right. But. Well... <laughs> Well, where do we start? It's a graphic story. It is. It's graphic oh, both visually and, that's true. and verbally. So uh, let's do a trigger warning right here, folks. Okay. If you don't like seeing possibly real, possibly dummied up alien goo just before warned, it is visually graphic. And so maybe not for the kids. But obviously you're not going to see it in a podcast that's audio only. However, if you, <laughs> if you, if you haven't seen it yeah. and you go to look for it, because it's pretty easy to find. But yes, it is incredibly graphic and uh it could give some people bad dreams uh, whether or not you believe right. it's real it's very well done which is what we're going to talk about yes nothing we discuss though is all that graphic yeah we'll give you a warning if it's bad you don't have to worry about tonight's show okay so let me uh let me do my line again <laughs> all right here all right folks it's time to operate uh, to dig into some dead aliens <laughs> so where do we start
I have to start at the beginning with this story because this mm. thing really made an impression on me when it came out. I was really freaked out about this. And th this was way before this <laughs> podcast was even a gleam in our eye. And, and you and I, I think it's possible we had maybe just met or were just getting acquainted. I think I knew of you, yes. Yeah, we knew of each other. But I certainly wasn't super focused on the paranormal at that time any more than anyone else. I had a fascination with this stuff, but yeah. now, obviously, if this were to come up again, I would be so much more analytical and trying to watch it and you know bring everything to it that we've learned in the past couple of years. But back then, I was just kind of a dumb kid. You know, I was a a, a tape runner delivering <laughs> tapes for a you know an editing house. And interestingly enough, Emily, my wife at the time worked at a special effects and finishing house in Santa Monica that put the titles together and assembled and did the final online of the Fox oh. special. So, uh -huh. but we had only been in LA for like a year at that point from North Carolina. I didn't really fully understand the process of post-production and all that. I was very green in terms of mm. what I understood about, but I knew that they were putting titles on this thing over at her office and she was a receptionist there and was talking about it. <laughs> but I think even talking about it with her outside of work, I didn't fully grasp the significance of what it was. So let's talk about that. For those of you who haven't seen this footage or don't fully know what we're talking about, this is the footage that was shown to the world in 1995 that appeared to show these scientists, and I'm using that term generically, more like pathologists, conducting an autopsy on what appears to be a dead alien laying on an examining table. Now, on top of that, this footage is being billed as lost footage that was directly connected to the Roswell crash in New Mexico in 1947. So the footage is like black and white, it's super grainy, and you see these guys opening up this being, which looks a lot like what most of society refers to as a gray alien. It has a horrific wound on its right knee, and you can even see what looks like a bone in there, and these guys are just walking around it and dissecting it, really, and you want to say, this can't be real. I mean, <laughs> that's what I was thinking, this can't be real, but there's so many details that do make it seem real. There's nothing in the footage that doesn't track with the time period it's supposed to be from, so it's a big debate, and people aren't sure what to believe when they see it. But you really only see a few clips of it in this Fox special. But what was interesting about it is when it ran, uh, you know, we certainly made a point to watch it. And they ran it a couple more times. They read it, ran it in November, I read on the Wikipedia page. So a few months later. And each time it just kept getting more and more ratings. And I do remember talking to everybody about it. Do you think it's real? I don't know if it's real. Mm -hmm. Of course, Emily's very cynical. My wife is just like, that's not, <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> like with a lot of people who are deniers about it. They couldn't really say specifically why it's not real if they said that, even back then. Well, look, to stop you for a second here, this is always what we come back to. The logic of a statement like that is you first have to ask the person making the statement, well, do you believe aliens exist? Is it possible that there's other life out in the universe other than our own. Yeah. A lot of times we'll, we'll get comments saying like, oh, that's totally fake. It's like, well, do you believe in ghosts? Like, no. Well, right. It has to be then fake. It has right? to be I mean, fake. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. If you're not considering the possibility, then there's no film that exists or that you could show that could be real because to you, that possibility cannot be possible. Yeah. And then the fact that this was connected to the most famous UFO crash, probably in history, the Roswell one or purported UFO crash. I'm sure there's plenty of people like it's that was just a weather balloon. It was all made up. Right. But does your wife believe UFOs exist? Aliens exist? I don't you never know. asked. I've you? never asked her. <laughs> oh, I, I think she believes in UFOs and, you know, that you can see things that are strange in the sky and all of that. Okay. I don't know okay. where she comes down on the aliens. I'm not well, sure. Well, you'll have to ask. Yeah, I haven't ever asked her that. But 
the thing that I really remember was how much of an impression it made and how much of the world was talking mm-hmm. about it and how much people were figuring it out. And one of the things that we'll talk about with Spiros is the benefit in hindsight of the all the years of experience that you and I both had in post-production. Right. There's telltale signs that contribute to the idea that it's not real, that we wouldn't have seen when we were younger because we didn't know at that time, at least I didn't, I didn't know what to look for. And I right. know more of that now, but... Still, the other thing that's fascinating to me about this is that when we decided to do this show as a topic, courtesy mm-hmm. of a mutual friend of ours who introduced us to tonight's guest, Spiros Malaris, yeah, he was like, hey, I know the guy that made the Alien Autopsy movie. I was like, what? <laughs> There's a guy that made it? Like, who, what is, I didn't even know what, I was so like gobsmacked by like just the idea that this was even a thing. And it was in only in the past three weeks that I learned there was this whole big thing came out about how it was definitely a hoax. But then there's these people that don't believe that. And there's people that think that our guest tonight is a disinformation officer or something (laughs) who's trying to perpetuate. So that's the part I love about this. It's like, we're going to put this here for you. We want you guys to see what you think. I know what I think. We know what we think because we've heard the whole interview and we've talked about it and, and you'll hear by the time we get to part two of this. But it is just an amazing story, no matter which way you look at it. And it's especially amazing if you think about how many people are convinced, even to this day, that it is a real film, whether you believe it is or not, right? Right. And a big shout out to our mutual friend who we're talking about here, Gletters, who is a radio DJ in the UK and also has his own paranormal podcast called Anomaly. Yes. I think we've talked about it before. We kicked that around as uh, one of the possible names for this podcast. So he scooped it up for the UK, but his website there is anomaly, A-N-O-M-A-L-Y dot C-O dot U-K. So he's got some episodes there. He's, uh, uh, it went on hiatus for a little bit, but he's going to start it back up. And so again, a big shout out and a big thank you to Gletters for making the hookup here because he's connected over there. Yes, he is. And he's also got experience in radio, which means his podcast is probably better than ours. So, Well, he sounds um, a lot better. <laughs> he's actually got a decent radio voice and presentation. Yes. And I, yeah. I wasn't mentioning him by name because I wasn't sure if that was okay. So I'm glad that you brought well, that up. Well, it's happening. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> Whether happening. he likes We've it or not, it. it's happening. No, no. He's, he's like I said, he's uh, thinking about starting his... Uh, uh, podcast back up. There's already a, a handful of uh, episodes on there with some very interesting folks in the paranormal field. So if you like all the stuff we're talking about, you'll certainly dig his show. Uh, let me ask you this, Scott, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but as we said in the cold open, you you might remember exactly where you were when you saw this stuff. Do you remember exactly where you were? I do. I was in um, my wife and I's first apartment in L.A., which was a crappy little crap hole (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) on Stanmore Drive in Playa del Rey. And uh, uh it was uh, flimsy, and you could hear all the neighbors, and it had a courtyard. It was very uh, Karate Kid, remember, that apartment they moved into? But smaller, much smaller. Very Californian, yeah. Very Californian. And um, in fact, hilariously, because our bedroom, there was a courtyard, and people would sit out there and talk at night. And right. we'd be trying to sleep and they're literally like five feet away. And I got so <laughs> irritated with it. I started taping those little glass like stink bombs to the chairs. Oh, geez. So that when you sat down, that would break open. <laughs> and, and it worked. <laughs> it worked for a it while did, until they started. Just, they, they, yeah, because they would sit they, down. They wouldn't hear it crack and the smell would come up and they would go back inside their houses. <laughs> <laughs> Well, wait a second. Did they, one of them thought the other one uh, farted? I don't know what they thought. All I knew was that I needed to get to sleep and they were out there. I see. And there was no AC. So so we always had the window to the courtyard open. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. (laughs) 
haven't said well, that. Well, no, a that's while, a, but... that's another Philbrook mystery that we should uh, get to the bottom of. Literally, uh, at the time, I remember I was like, "This is the perfect plan. No one's going to sit around in a cloud of stink." <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be surprised, my friend. That sets the scene perfectly because I, yes. I know exactly. Uh, the scenario you've just painted. Uh, so were you watching it with Emily? Yeah, we watched it there in our, you know, I remember that we had um, a kind of a, like a big TV, a big projector, rear projector oh, yes. TV that yeah. we had sprang for because we, we rang up a ton of debt that took years to pay off. Oh boy! And here's the other thing that's kind of fascinating about this. It was about, I guess, maybe a year and a half earlier was the Northridge quake. So we had been through that as well. We lived in that apartment when that happened, which was a very scary earthquake. But anyway, so yeah, I remember, I remember being in that place and I remember watching it there, even though she had seen it at work because she had, they had been working on it at work. That's right. Yeah. But she also kind of doesn't care about that stuff. So like, I don't even know if she went in there. She just like, you know, she's a comedy writer. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I I do. Yeah. I do know people like that. They're interested in other aspects possibly of the paranormal. And we've talked about this. uh, Well, we just did with uh, Stan Gordon, how, uh, and even people who get into it uh, semi-professionally who, who uh, research this stuff, certain genres really fit the bill for you. Yeah. Really hit the mark. And other ones like, eh, I don't really care so much. You know, like I'm, I'm really into cryptids, but ghosts, yeah, yeah, they're around, I guess. I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. And then some things just don't appeal to people, but I think because it's just not tangible for them. Well, I know she believes in the paranormal and the ghosts and that right, sort of thing, because right. we've talked about that before, but we haven't really talked about UFOs and aliens. I do think right. there's an eye roll from her when that stuff comes up. So. <laughs> That's exactly what this film, the niche this film fit, is that, well, here you go. Here's a piece of film. Believe your eyes or not. What do you think? And uh, it just, it caused such a sensation when it when it aired. You know, you and I can guarantee that no network's going to run it two more times if it ain't getting some eyeballs. Yeah, it definitely was a hit for them. And I think, you know, had the internet been flourishing in the way that it is today, it would have really gone just global fireworks, like instantly. I was thinking about just that right now here. And there's so there's two things I want to mention to you, get your impressions on before we move to the first segment here. One, that is a really interesting scenario because... If it aired now, think about this. In 1995, we didn't have all this baloney. Yeah. <laughs> we had compact computers with green screens and a CompuServe and dang, dang. Yeah, that and was a- our AOL. I'm pretty sure that I was at an AOL situation with the modem yeah. that was like, <laughs> bang, bang. Yeah, yes, and then that's uh, the, my favorite you've book. got mail. Right. <laughs> and you'd have web pages. People were, were getting pages up about UFOs up there and, and, uh, and information was going on there, but it took a, a minute to load the page, yeah. literally. Yeah. So at that time, seeing something like this was pretty spectacular, marvelous, wondrous. It really sparked the imagination, no matter what you believed. But if we saw this now, we've seen so much baloney on the internet. Daily, we're bombarded. There's so many faked videos. If we saw this, it's like, okay, so I guess the government just made a TikTok video of this autopsy and we're supposed to take that as authentic. Or would we be so jaded now seeing this? Or would it cause another sensation? I I think we would be jaded. I think it would would cause a stir, but there would be a lot more people just like, yeah, yeah, that's true. And the second thing I want to get your impression of, what did you think when you saw this? Well, okay, you and I... We're interested in this kind of thing before, of course. We're we're gonna tune in. That's gonna happen. And I think I maybe even programmed my VCR with a VCR plus code to make sure I taped oh, it. That's how you did it back then, then folks, yeah. <laughs> on VHS. 
because we were interested in these things. So I was excited. But what were your first thoughts as this thing's, uh, you see Jonathan Frakes, and then uh, here's the the intro to the story, and here's the footage, folks. Well, of course, I was a huge Star Trek nerd, so I was like right. on board there for sure. And then, sure. Um, honestly, I wasn't sure what to think. I was surprised mm. at how little they were saying about whether or not it was real. I mean, they were portraying right. it as this thing they were trying to track down, find these people, and there's some hindsight to that that we'll talk about probably in our conclusions, but the mm-hmm. way they presented it was like, we don't know. I mean, this this seems like yeah. it could be real. So you're going, oh, God, they, um, Riker wouldn't stand here and tell me it's, you know, it's not <laughs> he's real. He's a commander, he's real. He's for goodness sake. Yeah, he's number one. Yeah. So, but um, I think my impression was, yeah, I, I remember thinking, oh, well, this is 50 years old, for one thing, because right, that's how it's right. portrayed, you know, so sure. I was like, okay, that's good. This, if these things were here, this, for the scary part of it, this was 50 years ago, so hopefully they're gone. But I also remember thinking, at the time, this looks pretty convincing. And the other thing to remember uh-huh. is TV was SD. It was not HD. That's true. So That's that was true. contributing to um, the look of it. Right. Being hard to ascertain detail and that sort of thing. So, you know, yeah. I, I can't say that I unequivocally believed it. Right. But I can't say that I disbelieved it either. I would be lying to say that. And I think now, in hindsight, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I knew. I knew. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's whatever. It's does, easy sure. to say that because there's stories out there now about it being a hoax. But we're going to get into that. Well, let's get over to our guest tonight. His name is Spiros Malaris. He joined us from his home in the UK. And uh, before we get down to his involvement with the alien autopsy footage, let's find out a little bit about his background and what he's up to these days. Now that it's been 25 years since that footage was released to the world. At the moment, I'm I'm working on two different platforms. One is holographic images. So we create um, holograms, life-size holograms of people, bringing back people that are no longer with us, or anything else that might be needed for a presentation within a, an environment. I'm actually working on a, on a hologram of the alien autopsy, which we're, we'll be able to walk around. So, so you can actually walk on stage, the presenter can actually walk around the table and, and give a three-dimensional talk, if you like. So that's something that I've been working on for quite a while, and it's, it's now coming to a point where we've perfected it. So it's, it's very realistic. For a hologram to work, it needs to fool you. It's not really there. So if you don't shoot it correctly, and it doesn't have purpose and direction, then you won't be fooled. You'll be sitting there thinking, oh, I, I know it's not real, but isn't it great? That's, I failed. If you do that, I failed. I need you to say, I can't believe this. What is this? right? I want to touch it because it's that real. So there isn't a question of, I know it's not real. You actually suspend your disbelief. The other thing that I do is I, I've got a small publishing company with my sister. So we, we publish books. Just having to reinvent the wheel because uh, with lockdown, people are reading more and people are writing more. So it's just an opportunity to take things in another direction. On top of all this, you do magic as well, right? I've always been a magician. I don't suppose that's ever, ever going to stop. It started off as a hobbyist, you know, age six. My, my grandfather uh, got me interested and involved. And then before you know it, I'm a member of the Magic Circle and doing some bigger things, you know. So that's never going to stop. That's never going to finish. When you say you're a magician, people don't understand, don't understand what that means. Some people think that it's some kind of black magic thing. You've got you've to it's a pact with the devil, you know. Other people think it's uh, tricks. It's just a load of tricks. And actually, it's a lot deeper than that. You know, I come from a different school of thought, which is the psychology of magic, and which is why this film was possible. 
the psychology of magic isn't showing you what you see, it's showing you what you think you saw. And you believing what you think you saw. Mind magic is where I'm at. So if you met me in real life and I did something for you, it would be in your hands, it would be in your head. It wouldn't be me with a pack of cards doing things. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, an amazing skill. I'm not very good with cards. I'm not very good. That's not my persona. So close-up is only a genre. It's only a phrase. Close-up mind magic or close-up dexterity or juggling, <laughs> you know, it can be a matter of things. So, yeah, my thing is um, hands-off. What I do is in your hands, in your head. Man, my eyes just lit up when he said he was a magician. I was like, this is perfect. perfect. This story is perfect. He is a magician. If he's telling the truth, he has pulled off the most, one of the most amazing illusions of all time. It has been seen by 2 billion people and the buzz around it when it came out and to this day is still pretty phenomenal. Like when you start trying to decide whether or not he's telling the truth and his story makes sense, he couldn't have a better description of himself than, you know, the one he just gave us. And I, I love that. I think that's really compelling. Absolutely. Think about it, though. How many of the people in this, not totally in the paranormal, but a lot of them who, I guess, are ones that want to peel back what's going on here and maybe expose some stuff, but also study it. And I'm talking about uh, folks like Joe Nickel mm-hmm. perform stage magic. Uh, the Amazing Randy. Mm-hmm is out to debunk all this stuff. And, and I guess Joe is as well, but on the studying it side in the, the mental paranormal part, the psychic ability and remote viewing and psi, Russell Targ as a kid, that reminded me of exactly what Spiros was talking about as a kid. He was fascinated by magic and that's why he's up there on that Ted talk. Cause that's where it led to. And these guys, they know how the sausage is made. Yeah. So they know the mechanics of it, what can be done and, and what kind of wool and how, can be pulled over your eyes. That's right. And when he talked about the psychology of it, being into the mind manipulation, it's like he is a combination of a magician and a psychologist and to a certain extent, a confidence man. Well, that's the mentalist part coming in is that his mechanic, like a card mechanic would be cards and your visual acuity and your sight and uh, persistence of vision and all that kind of stuff. He's using the confidence man tricks to manipulate you. But I want to say something before we get rolling here. You could call it uh, a good-natured fraud played on the entire world. And of course, that stirred up a lot of people. Some people just thought it was amusing. Some people didn't care at all. Some people got very angry. And we'll hear about that later, who may or may not want to believe it, or you've just wasted our time. But his purpose, and I'm not sure where uh, we're going to discuss this and where it comes up, but I, I want to make this point clear. What he was doing would be the ultimate magic trick. I think you were alluding to and that it's also a performance art piece. Yeah. But unlike other magicians, he was going to do the trick, let the world stew on it for a bit, and then show you how the trick was done. That's right. That was his whole idea. What he was thinking here was that they would put it out there for free and let people freak out about it and stew on it. And then he thought the big plan that they were all in on together was then to come back and make a documentary about how they did it, how they fooled everyone. And all the income, the business part of this, would be in that documentary. Most magicians, uh, yeah, that's their cardinal rule. They don't show you how the trick was done. Remember that other Fox program with the uh, the, the masked magician and uh, he was exposing all these secrets? 
Yes. And, and he got death threats yeah. from yeah. magicians. Like, hey, dude, I, I just paid $10,000 for this trick. Like, how could you give that away? You never do that. But what James Randi does is that he's, he's trying to expose the con men and the frauds and the people who do, uh, you know, who, who pull the chicken gizzards out of your skin without breaking the skin. People like that, because that's what he believes, that he should expose the truth. And the masked magician on the Fox specials, I loved his point of view with that, is that, look, the reason I'm doing this, and yes, I've gotten death threats, and some people in the magic community hate me now, I'm persona non grata, but here's my point for doing it. These old hackneyed tricks are low level. It's magic 101. If you're still doing this as a stage thing and, and charging people, you need to up your game. It doesn't matter that I'm exposing these because this is really old hat. These are old hackney kind of things, but they're still really fascinating when they're explained and exposed. And that was his challenge to magicians. Hey, up your game. Think of better stuff. Bring more entertainment to the people. And so what's happening here is that, yes, it was a hoax. And I, like I said, a lot of people don't like to be tricked. They don't want to hear it. And especially if you're very strongly in the belief camp that this thing was real. But his purpose was to do this and basically document what happens when a hoax like this is pulled. And uh, boy, did it have some effect. This is Angelique and Michelle. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. In this segment, we're going to hear a little bit about the tent footage, which is really fascinating. This was an inspiration for this whole thing. When you start to follow the roadmap of how this all came to be, the tent footage is where it started, and there's a very interesting story there. So look out for that. Also, a name you want to listen out for is John Humphreys. John Humphreys is the guy who, according to Spiros, made the alien. And right. um, it's really fascinating because John is an artist and a sculptor and works in special effects. So that tracks. He he actually has credits all over the place, but uh, including Doctor Who. So that guy's the real deal. And again, that tracks with the possibility of this all being a hoax. They talk a little bit about how uh, the anatomy would work, which John is an expert on, and understanding why this particular alien didn't have a skinny neck, even though that was part of the accepted uh, description of Grays at the time. This one right. didn't because John was like, uh, well, you'll find out. You'll find out in a minute because Spiros will talk about it. And, and then the other thing that I th think is really interesting is when they go into the detail about the polydactylism. Mm. And the only reason I know what polydactyl means is because of Hemingway's cats. Oh, I thought you had six toes. No, I do not have six toes, oh. but uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway's cats, they had six toes. Oh. And um, they still do. They continue <laughs> to breed and have uh, right. descendants. And um, so I found out about that. There's certain cats that have this. And I was like, well, it turns out oh. that people can have it too. Uh -huh. But usually it might be on the hands, but not the feet, or the feet, but not the hands. Right. But, and not uh, all of them. And and not all of them. But what you will find out, though, is that you're not necessarily going to see that on the hands and the feet. So we're going to hear a little bit right. about that. And then we're also going to hear about how much thought they put into this creature. What does it eat? How does mm -hmm. it breathe? What's its biology? How does it reproduce? There was so much going on in terms of preparation. So we had to, we really wanted to hear from Spiros how it all began. I'll tell you the whole thing. I used to run a, a very small studio at the time. I had a, a small crew and I used to do four trips to France, to uh, Cannes in particular, 
to various markets for the industry. Those were MIP TV, which was um, a TV market where people went to sell their TV shows and when people went to buy the TV shows okay, from all over the world. Then you have MIPCOM, which like communication, so it was, it was PC games, it was software, it was all that sort of stuff. And it crossed over a little bit with film, uh, a little bit with music, because it was all in caption audiovisual stuff. Then you had uh, Medem, which was only music. And then you had the Cannes Film Festival, which everybody knows about, okay? And that, that was um, pretty much the four things that I used to do in Cannes, as well as everything else in the calendar, but it were, I was always there. Before I went this particular time, I was going with a crew because I had a job to, for um, one of the big record labels. And um, it was uh, Medem that I was visiting, it was all music, a music-based thing. And I had the catalogue of the people that were registered to go to the uh, conference. And Santilli was in there under the, the company, his company name, which I think at the time was Merlin. It might be another company because he had a few, okay? But I think at the time it was Merlin. So I sent out, I think, four or five faxes. And those faxes, no email at that time, you know, it was, just, it was just faxes. And I sent a fax out and I said, I'm going to be in Cannes with a crew. If you need anything filmed, give me a call. Very relaxed. Out of the four people that I, I sent the fax to, I got three jobs. And Santilli came back and said, I don't want you to film anything, but you're very local to me. We should meet up and maybe work in the future. At the time, my mobile phone worked in the UK. It didn't work in Europe. Okay, it's not like now, you know. There wasn't even roaming. And, and you know, if you did that, if you did that, that nonsense, it was a lot of money. So I was super, super impressed at the time because Santilli said to me, when you get to Cannes, give me a phone call and we'll meet up. And I was super impressed that his mobile would work in France. Okay. And never forget it because I'm a geek, you know, I'm a, I'm a gadget <laughs> geek. So, so that was a big deal, you know. It also puts you in a position of, I don't know, I don't know what the word would be, but he had credibility because of that. Um, he was a man in the know. He was a man on the go. He, was, he had his phone that worked abroad, right? So we arrived in France. I had a big van and all the equipment and the crew. And uh, we arrived very hungry. And I said to the guys, right, what are we going to eat? And we all started arguing about what we're going to eat. And I just said, look, you know what? You go do what you want to do. I took my assistant and we went to an Italian restaurant. And they went off for other things. So we went to an Italian restaurant, sat down, ordered our food. And directly opposite me was an American gentleman who worked for Warner Brothers. And we got chatting. He was asking me all sorts of questions of what I'm doing and what he's doing. And, you know, at the end of the evening, when everybody's starting to leave, he said, well, it was lovely to meet you. Hopefully we'll meet up again while you're out here. He said, sorry, I didn't catch your name. And I said, my name is Spiros. And I shook his hand. And once I said Spiros, the guy next to him said, Spiros? And I said, Ray? He was sitting there the whole time, and I didn't know it was him. He didn't know it was me, and that's how we had the meeting, the first meeting. So everyone started to leave. The chairs went up on the tables, and we had a bottle of wine, sat there together, and started talking about future projects and things. There was a girl walking around mopping up. You know, We were there till about 2 in the morning. After about an hour of talking to him, he seemed to be a sane, intelligent individual, he suddenly drops a bombshell, which was, I've bought a film of an alien autopsy. 
I said, you mean a foreign person? He said, no, an alien from outer space, right? Right. So I thought, oh, no, I just wasted all this time talking to this guy. <laughs> and he's, 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 you know, but open-minded, right? I said, okay, I'd love to see it. He said, okay, well, when you come to London, come and see me, I'll show you the film. And what I'd like you to do is make a documentary about it. Great. So we finished what we did. I didn't give it a second thought. I just thought, the man is mad. Now, just to give this a little bit of background, Santilli was telling people that he had an alien autopsy as far back as 93. And I've met the people since then. Okay, one of them is Philip Mantle. Okay, Philip Mantle, he met Ray because Ray said he had an alien autopsy. And every time Philip said, show me it, he couldn't. Oh, not yet. I haven't got it yet. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. Because he didn't have it. He was in a meeting with another group of people that he works with in Milton Keynes. Uh, and these guys ran a company called AK Music. And they were sitting around a table having coffees. And somebody said, wouldn't it be great to have a bit of footage of an alien autopsy and put it out, you know, as a, as a bit of a joke. And Ray, that's where he got the idea. He was never in the UFO community, neither was I, right? We knew nothing of it. So he started to investigate a little bit, and he thought, oh, this Roswell crash, this would be great, right? So the guys at AK Music thought it would be funny to make an alien autopsy. So they made a fake alien autopsy in a shed, in a barn, and it was a joke. It was very jokey, very, you know, and we now know that film as the tent footage, okay? Uh, if you haven't got it, I can send you it. So the tent footage was a guy, a real person, lying on a table with a sheet over him and a papier-mâché head of an alien. And he's got his head a little bit to the side like this and he's got the alien and his head's covered and he's got the alien head there. It was a joke, right? And it was, it was in the dark and it had a, a gas lantern hanging there. And these guys are supposedly doing an autopsy on the most important thing the world has ever seen in a shed at Gaslight. And what they're doing, you know, the whole thing is... So I went to Ray's office and he sat down, very serious, put this VHS tape in and he showed me the tent footage. And I looked at it and then I saw a glitch. And I said, Ray, this is not real. He said, why, what do you mean it's not real? Of course it is. It's, I said, it's shot on low band, low band video. I said, if it's not VHS, it's, it's low band, right? He said, no, 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 it was transferred from film to VHS. I said, why would you do that? Why would you transfer to VHS when you should be transferring to beta? At least, at least, right? Doesn't make sense. I said, besides, the glitch that I saw is a, is a camera head glitch. It's not, it's an in-camera how do you know that? I said, it was my job to know that. I said, if I film something and that happens, and it has happened, I've got to remove it. I've got to shoot it again because I can't deliver this to a client, okay? So it's a problem, right? It's a problem for me. This is not real. Besides, I've got so many other questions as to if this is an alien, why they're performing in this situation. So I left him with, the, listen, it's not real, okay? And we're wasting our time here. So his shoulders dropped like a defeated man. You know, this body language was like, oh, right? And I could see him thinking, if I can't get it past this idiot, idiot how am I going to get it past anyone else, right? But he had shown a couple of UFO guys, and Philip Mantle was one of these people. And it was kind of, isn't going to wash. It's, gonna, it's not going to last five minutes. 
I got in my car and I'm driving home. And I called my friend John Humphreys, who's also was, was a partner in various things. And John is a sculptor. And we've worked together in, in film special effects, TV special effects. So his sculpting was being used in the effects field, although he's a classically trained artist. Okay? So his qualifications are from the artistic side, not from the special effects side. Okay, so I phoned him up and I said, John, you should have seen this. It was ridiculous. We could have made this thing easily. You know, I don't know why they, they made. He said, well, why don't we? Oh, that's a great idea. That's how I put the phone down to John and I phoned Ray Santilli. And I said, Ray, listen, I can make this film for you properly. Okay. But what we need to do is I don't want to con anyone. I don't want to sell it to people as if it's real. I said, we'll put it out for free. We'll tell people we don't know what it is. Do you tell us what it is? And then after they don't know what it is, we'll make a documentary that we will sell, showing you how we made it, okay? And he said, that's a great idea, that's a great, but can you make it convincing? I said, I can make it so it'll fool people, everyone. All the expertise is so we, we, we can make it watertight. But how can you do that? I said, we can do it, I'll work away. Now, that's where the magician came in. If you said to me, can you make this girl jump out of the window and fly off into the distance? My knee-jerk reaction answer is yes. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but I'm never going to say no. <laughs> you see, so yes, we can do that. And then our, my, my problem now is to make it work, right? So anyway, so we went away and I had to come back with a price to make it. So John and I went to uh, a little restaurant we used to go to a lot because his studio was around the corner from a place called Fabrizio's and it was a little Italian coffee shop. And we sat there in Fabrizio's with bits of paper and a pencil and we started talking about the alien we're going to build. And John is an expert on anatomy. He's a sculptor, right? He studied anatomy, muscular formations where the bones are where the muscles go on the bones all right because he's ha he has to create these things you know that's what he does so it's very useful to have that to, when you're creating a body the first thing john said is i don't buy these thin little necks because you've got this big head like this and a little thin neck like this either this head is full of nothing or it can't be held up on this stem I said, and I would do what everyone does now. All the ufologists do, well, how do you know what an alien is, right? That's the get out of jail card. Well, it's an alien. How do you know what an alien is, right? And John's answer was perfect. It was not interested on what it could be. I need to make it work. How can I make this work, right? If I create this on Earth, right, it's going to flop all over the place, right, if I have a little thin neck. How do I keep it in position? And then I've got to put a metal rod up and stick the head on the end so it doesn't move. Now it won't move. It's going to look wrong. So, so he said, we need to make this biologically appealing. We need to make it correct. And I, I said, I agree with you. I said, the only problem we have with that is if we do that, we go against what people say they saw. So the, the eyewitnesses, I, I use the word with inverted commas, okay? The eyewitnesses say they saw this and we're going to create something else. And then he said, well, what, what do you suggest? I said, you know what? I like it because it's a double bluff. Why would somebody create something that's different if they already have a blueprint that people will agree that's what it is, right? So by going against that, it's, well, it has to be real because a hoaxer wouldn't do that. So let's do a few things that are correct. Let's have the big black eyes. Let's have the low set ears. 
let's have the big head, but let's make it different in other areas, which psychologically makes sense. Let's not worry about them saying, oh, but that's not what I saw. Because you know what? You may have seen a different kind of alien. Let's use that get out of jail card because you're going to say then what an alien looks like. Well, your alien looks like this. There must be different kinds of aliens. If an alien came to Earth and you lined up a black man, a Chinese man, a Japanese man, an English man, and you put, you put them all in a row, okay, and then you do the same thing again but with different sizes, a very thin man, a very fat man, a very, right? I'm sorry, ladies, uh, I'm, I'm using the word man generically, okay, all right? But you line up this array of people and they are all different one's got a squashed nose one's got a big nose one's got bigger ears one's got well you know what they're all human beings but they're different so it's an area of dare i say a gray area it's an area of doubt as to what it, what it will be that's fine so we then looked at history and we thought well if this is something that happened in 1947 that's not that long ago not in this historical terms so let's go further, because if these things are from the future, we juxtaposition to them from the future in the past. Now, now it becomes a really good story now, right? It becomes, so people think, oh, let's just make an alien. No, it's not how you do it. You don't just make an alien. You need to know who this alien is. You need to know how it eats, how it breathes, how does it reproduce, does it reproduce? What does it eat? Does it breathe air? You need to know about this alien before you build it, okay? I did a little bit of research in terms of creatures in the past that had three fingers, none. Not humanoid creatures, none, right? How many had six fingers? Lots. I thought, okay, so, you know, Goliath the giant, six fingers, six toes, okay? Cleopatra in Egypt, six fingers. All right, the Nephilim, uh, we're talking about the, the fallen angels in the Bible, six fingers, six toes. So if you go to Aztec or, or even American Indian history, you see carvings and paintings with giants with six fingers and six toes. So you know what? I kind of like that because there's a route that people will say, you know what, that, that has happened. Then I looked at the, the medical side. My girlfriend at the time called her Geraldine. She doesn't want to be known. So Geraldine did all the medical research and she came back with, this is quite a common thing. It's called polydactyly. And human beings can grow an extra digit. There's not been a case on record where they've had six fingers and six toes on both hands and both feet. They have had a hand with an extra finger that comes out sideways, not perfectly formed. Others have had perfectly formed feet with six toes, but maybe on one foot. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a genetic abnormality. Okay, I just got to interrupt here. One of my favorite things about what he just said was that they mm -hmm. met in this restaurant. I love that they meet in this restaurant and they're planning out the alien. <laughs> it's like the, it's on a napkin, right? You know. Well, that, hey, did you know the the backstory of uh, Ghostbusters? Most of that was hashed out by Dan Aykroyd at Arts Deli here in right. the Valley. Yeah, he used to go there every day, and over lunch and and matzo ball soup, they would discuss uh, what they wanted the initial film to be, and it was so grandiose that he was ahead of his time. It, it could not have been pulled off with the special effects there, because we've talked about this before. It was going to take place on other planets and be 
just crazy. So yeah, all the best ideas are, uh, I think, uh, meted out in diners. Well, now it's time for them to start working out the real details of this thing. Yeah. Like, you know, would it have a belly button? Why is it here? And what are its <laughs> eyes like? You know, which I yeah, love this. Yeah. And, and the fact that they put this much thought into each step of it is what makes it all work if you believe Spiros' story. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me. It's, and I think I told you this. I just crammed on Netflix Money Heist, which is, you know, not the best name, but the the because it's a Spanish <laughs> show and it's actually called well, House yeah. of Paper. And I don't know why they can call it that because it takes place in a mint. Oh, first. that's much better. But the American one is called Money Heist. But anyway, it's really fascinating show. Yeah, yeah, it is. I love heist stuff. And the reason I love it is because of how much thought you have to put into pulling off a heist and being successful at it. And that's what this feels like to me. As he un- unfolds this story it is like he's the guy that sat down he's like we have got to think what if this alarm doesn't trip what if the safe won't open what if someone sees us walk into the building he was doing all of that ahead of time it's like when you talk about the eyes why are they black and well most of these aliens have black eyes but then he took it to another level and they remove and you'll you see that when you watch the film which by the way we have a link to where you can get the film online and i'm pretty sure it's on youtube probably for free so we can just we'll put a link for that as well but the other thing is you know what i remember the most it was like the eyes were had tinted windows and of course the thought that you had is like this is because it's out in space it's going near the sun yeah you know and then that's where it needs to be which does and doesn't make sense depends on how long i guess you've been traveling or maybe your home planet is real close yeah. to a sun or has two suns like Tatooine. Tatooine? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nerding out. Nerds. But, uh, <laughs> but, but my point is that like when they take those black covers off in the documentary and you see that this thing's eyes are rolled back in its head, that is a very yeah. human moment. You have a visceral reaction to that. You're like, this yeah. thing is dead and its eyes roll back just like, like it would in one of us, if one of us died and you feel bad for it. And he talks about how that came to be because initially apparently the eyes were not rolled back and the amount of work they had to do to add that detail is pretty fascinating. Like any good actor, you develop a backstory for your character. Right. Think about what an actor has to do. They're trying to sell their character to an audience. Yeah. That's what Spiros and John were doing. That's right. They have to sell this thing. And, and what do you do? You try and make it as real as possible. It just reminded me here of a, yes, folks, you're going to get another movie reference. But um, in the 1991 movie Rush with Jason Patrick yeah. and Jennifer Jason Lee, you know, he's undercover and they're developing their stories because basically you're trying to sell people that you're undercover. You're not a cop and she isn't either. And you have to have backstories and it has to be believable. You have to sell people who can sniff this stuff out. And I remember he, he was creating his backstory He's telling her, Jennifer Jason Lee, you know, when you create your backstory, try and find as much truthful stuff about it that's real. One, you can remember it better. And that's what I thought about here. When you think about the logic of it, which was a stroke of uh, brilliance on their part, it's easier to remember because the story fits. And so Jason Patrick says to her, it's like, well, I'm going I'm to be the manager of a pizza hut. And she goes, oh, well, then did you really manage a pizza hut? And he goes, no, but I ate there a lot. <laughs> so right, he was right. familiar with it. Right. It's like he didn't have to concoct this crazy, fantastical story, which I think that's what Spiris was saying. It's like when your imagination runs wild, and certainly you hear people uh, now in popular media who come out with a story, and it's just like, that's eh, too much. It's a little, I mean, this is all fantastical, but there are some little touches that are perfect. Like you said, the eye covering. When I saw that, it's like, ooh, nice touch. 
Yeah. I don't know really what to think about it, but it was a nice touch. <laughs> As we say about so often about all these different hoaxes, if they are hoaxes, then it's pretty good sci-fi with any of these stories when we're covering it. When I hear about something that, you know, might be a clue to the veracity of a story, I'll give them points for ingenuity. Like, that's pretty good sci-fi. That right there is some creative thought. So they get points in my book just for that. The other aspect, though, this reminds me of my corporate editing days, talking about this time period, because that's what I was doing in, in 1995. We had to edit in this uh, John, very famous John Cleese video series on sales, like how to sell. And it was, I think, like a 10-part series where he just talks about all these aspects. But I remember one very clearly, and it is the con man kind of uh, angle here, but he said, you know, one of the foremost keys to selling is you have to remove all the objections that the buyer may pose. It's like, well, I don't like this. Like, well, you don't have to do that. We'll give you a product that doesn't have that. You remove all of their objections, then it's much easier for them to accept buying it and for you to sell it. So that's what Spiros did here. He thought of everything that's like, well, what would a pathologist look for? What would these experts look for in their field? Because that's what you're going to do. It's like, are the incisions happening where they should be? Are they using the saw correctly? Are they examining things the, the way that they would want? And perhaps to a filmmaker, a camera person, a camera operator, they would see that and go, oh, you know what? Somebody who's been doing that for the military, they wouldn't do it like that. Like they, it would, they would try to make it in focus. They're getting blocked by the shots. But he had a story for that, Spiros, a logic to that. And so for everything that an expert might look at, the date of the film, all these different elements, uh, he had a backstory for that. That's right. And the other thing that you're going to hear, the first part, or the first of it here, you're going to hear about the debris footage. And this is something a lot of people don't know about or they forget about. There was what they call the debris footage that was at the end of the autopsy footage. And people don't remember that so much because it was very short. I think it might have just been one roll of film. But in the debris footage, you see these you see some these I-beams that have strange writing on them that are somehow connected yeah. theoretically to the Roswell crash. And these control panels for a six-fingered being to theoretically control the ship that Spiro says he made. I designed that, and I'm very proud of that because my design is sleek and beautiful, okay? There was a guy in 1995 unbeknown to me, we didn't know, was working with NASA, who had invented a hand panel to control computers. And, and he said that uh, there's no, it's on the back now, you see. And there's, there's no reason why such a thing couldn't control an aircraft. Okay. Well, his one was very bulky and blocky, and it looked quite uh, PC, as opposed to mine that looked a bit Apple. <laughs> okay. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, you know, because mine was very thin, very elegant. It's just beautiful, you know. And his was very clunky with little levers that you push. Mine had little ball bearings, you know. So, um, mine didn't work, of course. That's the bottom line. His worked. So, I've got to give him a little bit of credit. The idea of the six fingers felt like a great red herring to throw in. Because if we're going to make this thing different from what they say they saw, then we need people to say, well, actually, that makes a lot more sense. This is believable, because this is not believable as an advanced being, right? That's not believable. So more digits would seem to be better than less digits, okay? So that was a change that we made. The other thing that we made was that obviously the much bigger neck, the more muscular neck. And if you're going to have a muscular neck, then 
a muscular body would follow. So we, we made it a bit more muscular. And then we started talking about things like the black eyes. The black eyes don't make sense to me. I don't see how that can work as a lens. So, all right, well, how do you know what an alien is? Okay, well, yeah, I, I don't know. But I do know that you, you, you have a pupil and iris, okay? And, and you need to be able to, to open and close that pupil and iris. Now, everything we've seen are these big black almond eyes, which might be the, what is that, the iris? What is it? Always uh, that open? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't see how it works. So rather than have to explain something that doesn't work for myself, I'd rather explain it so that people can go, oh, see, that's what it is. Okay. Because the minute you do that, they tick a box in their head. They tick a box. Ah, that's correct. Let's tick that box. No one's saying, look, it has to be real because of this. It's just a silent thing. So. The lenses, we made the, the eyes, the black covering, as a lens. Maybe if you're traveling through, through space, you're going to come a lot closer to the sun and other planets which are bright than we've ever been, okay? And we can't look at the sun. So imagine flying past a closer distance. So these are lenses like sunglasses. What if we remove the lenses and then we see a real eye underneath with an iris and a pupil and, 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 and now a lens that can work. Because if this wasn't real, why would someone do that? Why would you go to the extra level? Well, because I need you to buy it, right? I need you to buy it. I need the more levels there are, like a magician will say, uh, you thought of a card, okay, but it's now no longer in the pack. If you look in your shoe, take your shoe off, and there's nothing you should know. You take your sock off, and now the card's inside on your foot. It's an extra layer. Now, I could have just delivered it there and then, and it would be an effect, right? But no, taking it a little bit further, a little bit further becomes more and more impossible to the point where you go, I don't know. Because if I just left it in the pack, you could say, maybe he put it there. Maybe he did something. Maybe it's in my, it's in my shoe, right? <laughs> it's just all logic goes out the window. So equally with the eye, you remove the lens, there's an eye underneath. And also uh, we had a lot of fun with this, you know, because you know, John originally did the eye looking forward. I said, John, this is instead. It's dead. Roll them up, right? I'm not doing them again. So you have to do them again. <laughs> but roll them up because could you imagine he hand-painted the eye where the eye was, right? Anyway, so he, he literally painted the white in. Then he painted the iris and gently worked in and did all the coloring. In real life, they were beautiful, not black and white. They were beautiful. And he said, why have I got to do this? This is going to be black and white. I said, because John, you're never going to get the shading right. You're never going to get the... It doesn't matter. Because when you translate color to black and white, if you just did it in grays, it wouldn't be the same. And not a lot of people would look at it, you know, they were, but, but it was a case of, no, let's do it right. Let's do it for the sake of it, for what it is. The alien had a lovely blue-gray eye. You know, it was, it was really nice. Um, so now the eyes were rolled up into the top of the and suddenly you're feeling sorry for it. As soon as that, that lens comes off, now you're thinking, oh, poor thing's dead. You're not looking at this thing staring at you that wouldn't look real. So you need to know what the, what the alien is, who it is, and all the little details about it. What are his hopes and dreams? <laughs> we then, well, well, you know what? The hopes and dreams, I think, it's a good question, is um, our planet can't survive. We need to find a new place to live and we're looking and we need to find something that has water somewhere that has 
a temperature we can live at. We found Earth. Earth. Earth looks good. And maybe they've been visiting us quite a long time. Who knows, right? Lots of people say they've seen, they've, they've experienced. And we've got to say, as logical human beings, as intelligent people, we've got to say, could be. Don't know, but could be, right? Because until we know, we don't know. <laughs> so I've never seen an alien. And I'm not going to sit here and say to you, well, they're 100% real, they're 100% correct. I can't see, personally, how they can travel the distance they would need to travel at the speed they would need to travel and make it. So then you elaborate on that and you say, okay, well, maybe the ones that left aren't the ones that make it. Maybe the children are the ones that make it. Maybe there's a colony on a spaceship and it's big. And they just reproduce, reproduce, and eventually somebody makes it. Maybe, right? And I, I kind of like that idea. I went down the road of a different way because anyone that's been to Roswell seen the crash site. This is not a big thing that smashed there. This is not a colony-type Star Trek thing that lots of people are on it. This is a much smaller craft. So did they leave the mothership further away and come in on a smaller craft once they got near our atmosphere? Well, that's possible, right? Who knows? But what did crash wasn't big. So how many, how many aliens were on it? Not that many. So it wasn't a matter of reproducing. And I thought, well, what about if they don't reproduce? What about if they grow a body? So they grow a body, they wear this one out, and they simply move into the new body. Okay, And then that way, I can see how they can carry on and if they have damage through G-forces or whatever, they can just change body, right? They can just move into a new body. So if that's the case, and that was our story, then it wouldn't have a belly button. It wouldn't be born. It would be grown. So let's get rid of the belly button, throw the cat amongst the pigeons and have people arguing about it. Then I came up with this idea. Again, it's sci-fi, right? You've got to understand, right? Because you say this too many times, it starts sounding real. Right? It sounds like, you know, it's plausible, but it is just sci-fi. So how do they feed themselves? How do they eat? How do they, uh, you know, and I, I kind of saw them hibernating. I, saw, I kind of saw them sleeping quite a long time in the journey. So how do they keep themselves fed? So I figured, you know what, if they had two stomachs and one stomach had bacteria that grew and reproduced within itself, and then that bacteria trickles into the second stomach that nourishes the body, then while sleeping, that would be enough for them to be sufficiently nourished because they're, not, they're in sleep mode, okay? There's no energy being exerted. And then I thought, I had a book that I got from, from it's a Yuri Geller book, and it was about crystals. And on the front mm -hmm. cover, you got a free crystal that was energized by Yuri Geller himself, okay? And it was a whole thing. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? to put a crystal on the heart of the alien, because that would be like a, a pacemaker, a natural pacemaker, that would kick it back into action when it needs to wake up. I thought, well, you've got, you've got quartz crystal watches, and it, it keeps the watch going, right? So maybe, uh, maybe this would, it's feasible. So we did that. I actually took the crystal from the front of the cover of the Yuri Geller book and put it onto the alien heart and latexed it all in and, and made so, so the guy could cut the latex away and bring the, the crystal out. And I thought, what a great talking point, a dinner talking point, you know, one day with Uri, and I would, I would reveal it was, his, it was his crystal in the alien, right? It was a great little... So that was kind of lots of little things like that that were, that were going on. So once we establish who the alien is, we could build it. 
we sketched it. We thought, okay, well, if we've got a live stomach that's feeding this stomach and then the, the creature dies, this stomach won't be dead. This stomach will still be alive and it will still be producing bacteria that no one's going to eat, no one's going to digest. So the stomach will carry on to blow out and it will, it will just become distended. So let's make it a distended belly. And while we're at it, it might look pregnant. So let's make it look like it's female. Okay, so people will say, it's pregnant, it's female. Look, no pathologist worth their salt or doctor would look at a film of an alien and give comment. But they're not going to risk their reputation and say, oh, yeah, I can see it's an alien. They're not going to even go there, right? But Cyril Wett, who was the biggest pathologist in the US, in fact, the world, did all the big cases, all the big court cases, when the body died, how it died, what time it died. So he's the guy that was teaching loads of other 40,000 autopsies that he'd supervised. 40,000, you know, this is the guy. We had Milroy in, in the UK, we had a Queens pathologist. We had a guy called uh, Ian West at Guy's Hospital, another expert, and they gave it the time of day because it didn't look like it was alien. It looked odd, right? What, what am I looking at? Once they start seeing the head, they started thinking, oh, I've been duped a little bit here, but I'm still going, I'm here now. Right. Right, let's take it a little bit further to see what, and they try to medically rationalize all the little areas, the six fingers and six toes. Well, that's something we've seen before, okay? And the distended belly, and, and we've, we've seen, you know, maybe the head is due to radiation, maybe. So they've seen all these little bits. So maybe it's human, maybe it's got Turner's syndrome, maybe. And they're trying to cover themselves and not say it's an alien. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I've never seen this before. As soon as you cut it open, it's not human anymore. So the doctors did look at it, and they did say, all the things we wanted them to say. They said, if this was a human being, the ears are low set, the eyes are too big. We have seen six fingers and six toes, but we've never seen it on both hands and both feet. Is this a young lady that's you know, suffering from multiple things, medical issues, maybe radiated, maybe Turner syndrome, maybe, right? So they did all of that stuff. And then at the end, they had to say, I don't know what this is. That's where we want to be. But then they would, what they would do, as anyone else would do, is pass the buck. As far as I'm concerned, it's not human. Uh, I don't know what it is, right? So slowly, slowly, we got rid of the pathologists and the doctors. We then got rid of the special effect experts because they couldn't reproduce this in 1947. Okay, two points I want to make here. One, he was mentioning the idea about the uh, generations of possible aliens yeah. living on a ship. And uh, I thought about two things. One, I couldn't remember the term <laughs> for that. I, I knew that idea. And then I had to look it up later, like, oh, generation ship. That's kind of the general right. uh, term for Battle that. Battlestar Galactica it, yeah, situation. That's right? the other one. Yes, yeah. Battlestar Galactica, where uh, you just have people living on a ship possibly for hundreds or thousands of years or, or longer and uh, traveling throughout space looking for a new home. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the, the one idea. The second thing is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, I can't remember if I said Jason Patrick worked at a pizza hut, but I think it was a Shakey's Pizza. Oh, Shakey's. I just want to clear that oh, up. Oh, okay, good. Nice yeah. fix. There's a big difference. Yeah, yeah. You saved us a Shakey's pickup and a, <laughs> a bunch of uh, complex. Angry letters from uh, Shakey's aficionados, <laughs> because I think they also had uh, fried chicken there. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's a fascinating idea, though, is that he was... Again, creating this backstory of like, what would they look like? And again, if they had gravity on a ship, 
that pencil neck wouldn't work so well. You got a big old head with a melon sitting on those shoulders. You need a beefier neck to hold that up. I think then John and Spiros may also be the originators of the idea that aliens possibly might have dad bods. <laughs> have, you, have you seen them pop up with sculptures yeah. of little aliens or little pot belly on them? Yeah. The things he thought of, the, the you know, stomach flora uh, has nothing to digest now. It's just expanding. And, and, you know, like I said, he's got this backstory going. So everything made sense in this world, whether you explain that to the viewer or not. You put it out there, you let people go nuts with it. Here's the other thing I love was when he brought up the crystal on the heart. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, there's an idea for it. And, and Yuri <laughs> Geller. Um, and oh, for, yeah. For those of you youngsters out there who've never heard of him, he is the original spoon bender. This guy was- The last and, spoon bender. Yes, yeah. very, very famous for being able to uh, bend spoons. Yeah, part of that era of 70s and early 80s mysticism on TV, you could say, along with Kreskin. Yeah. You know, there has always been interest in that. And of course, every generation, especially as uh, ones that appear on TV, have come out. And also, remember the psychic Peter James with the dark mustache and the white hair? And he was another mainstay of uh, the talk shows. And he, he comes up in the Sally uh, house episodes with uh, sightings. Remember that show? They had yeah. him on there. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's all these things that we're familiar with. And so Yuri Geller was just one of those. And of course, uh, he's also now featured, you can see him in the documentary Third Eye Spies, talking about Russell Targ and remote viewing. Uh, it's very interesting to see him pop up again. And of course, uh, a lot of people have uh, cast doubt on him and any of his abilities and uh, relegated him as a charlatan, but not so fast. He may have actually got some real things going on there, but that was interesting that he borrowed that idea, which I I thought of E.T. Remember the little crystal light on the finger? Yeah, so yeah, putting that crystal, one of Yuri Geller's crystals specifically on there. I love that. I love it. It's like, a, it's a nice <laughs> yeah. touch, a little bit of an inside joke. Um, it's an Easter egg, yeah. Hey everyone, I'm Luke Rogers, and when I'm not chasing spirits either ethanol or ethereal, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. All right, so in this next segment, we're going to talk about the film. And this is one of what I think is one of the most impressive aspects of the sleight of hand and sleight of mind that is perpetrated in the execution of this. Again, if if you're uh, going along with believing that Spiros did all this stuff, this is where he actually managed to get Kodak to certify that the film was 1947 film. And this was the biggest trick of all. This was probably, I think for me anyway, one of the most significant points of saying, okay, if this is a hoax, I mean, how could they have possibly hoaxed this in 1947? And what you're going to find out here is that this was a bigger trick than you can imagine, but the way that Spiros made it work is truly artful. What you can get away with and what he was able to do, uh, not only with the film physically to prevent Kodak from determining that it wasn't from 1947, but also mentally and in the games Mm -hmm. that he played to manage the Kodak expert who was looking at it. So I think the further you go with this and the more that you hear from Spiros, the more you're going to start to wonder is this one of the most masterful illusions that has ever been pulled off in human history? Certainly one of the biggest ones in terms of audience size. Let's find out what he had to do to convince the world that this movie was actually made in 1947. 
So slowly, slowly, we got rid of the pathologists and the doctors. We then got rid of the special effect experts because they couldn't reproduce this in 1947. So in essence, what I did was we bought genuine 1947 film, known film, of archive material, news footage, all that sort of stuff. We managed to buy a baseball game which was shot in Roswell. So it was a, it was a college thing. And what we did was we had a genuine can, okay, so that's nice aged, correct for the time, with the markings correct for the time. Then we had a leader film, which for those of you that don't know, it, it's not a film at all. It's just a blank piece of plastic with sprocket holes in it. So it's just used to wind it on, onto the projector. Then we had a leader film of actual film that had no images on it. What you do is you, you do run a bit of film on before you start filming. So that little bit of wasted film, which has the correct markings on it for the 1947 film. And then you have the actual film that was shot, which started off with the camera pointing to the ground and he's walking along and he lifts the camera up and you see a couple of steps, a doorway, and then the next thing you see is you see the guys in the dressing room getting ready for the baseball game. And you've got a massage table, you know, like a therapy table in the middle. So nothing past the steps was usable because you can now see the guys in their helmets and the, the padding and the whole thing, right? So we took it up to the steps and then we spliced my film to that film. So uh, when you splice a film, you've got a, a, a strip of film here, a strip of film here, and you, you have to step it over by a frame or two, usually a frame. And once you've stuck it together there, there's a little step both sides, okay, because it, it's one on top of the other. That gets wound on to what you just spliced onto is the actual celluloid film that I shot with the alien autopsy on it. What happened next was... We've got this film we'd like you to date. Okay, uh, leave it with us and come back in a couple of three days and we'll do the tests. Well, Why do you need so long? What are you going to do? Well, what we do is we cut a few frames, we punch a hole in one of them and we look at the makeup of the film. We then put some chemical on another one and we see how it reacts with the chemical. And then we look at the actual material, footage on the material and we'll tell you from fogging and how it's weathered, how long before it was developed to when it was shot. You can shoot a film now, not develop it, develop it now, and it will show that it hasn't been developed in how many years, okay? And they, they have a gradient, because they have all sorts of things, fogging and all sorts of things that happen. We don't want to leave the film with them for obvious reasons, because the film past the splice is Fuji film. It's not even Kodak. They see that, it's blown, that's it, it's gone, right? Good cop, get bad cop. So Ray says, well, yeah, okay, well, you know, I said, no, Ray, there's no way we're leaving this film. Too valuable. So the guy says, uh, well, can I just see the edge markings? Maybe I can give you a ballpark. So he goes to take the film, and I said, no, 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 I'd rather you didn't touch it. Would you mind if I did it? So I put the white gloves on, and I take the thing out. All he wants to do is look at the edge markings, right? And I reel it off, and I go up to the splice, I feel it, and I go a little bit further, and he now sees the alien image. And then I, I'll go back. Sorry, you want markings? There, there's some markings. Okay. And I've put back the splice and I've put back the alien footage. And now he's got a bit of blank film with no image on it, a couple of steps and the stuff from the original baseball game. And he sees a square and a triangle. 
And then he says, can I just look a bit? I said, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not feeling comfortable with this. I'll put it back. But sorry to bother you. I'm sorry to waste your time. Ray, let's go. He said, well, let's just see what the man's got to say. He says, well, uh, from what you show me, it's a square and a triangle. And that tells me that it's this year, that year, or that year. He then brings a chart out and he shows us a square and a triangle. And it shows you 1927, 1947, 1967. I said, oh, well, we think it's 1947, right? He said, well, I can tell you for a fact it's not 1927 because that was phosphorus material and that would have a vinegar smell. It would be a whole different thing. I don't have the vinegar smell. I don't have the... He says, I, I know for a fact it's 47 or 67, but I can't be more precise than that. And Ray says, is it okay to put that in, in a letter for me so we can show our boss? that it could be a 47 or a 67. So he wrote a letter that says, from the footage that I've seen, and, da, 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 and the title's on the can, right? So he said, alien autopsy. We just said it's a school project. It's a, you know, it was, it was a kid's thing. It was a, no big deal. Not, he's not looking at uh, anything. Doesn't know what it is. So we got a letter that said, that from the film that I've seen, alien autopsy, it's either 1927, 1947, or 1967, based on the edge mark. That's all we needed. Let me qualify that a little bit further. This is a genuine 1947 can. He hasn't seen many of these. This is not a daily occurrence. He then opens it up and we see the spool is a weathered, aged 1947 spool. He doesn't see many of these. The ones he sees now are modern plastic and nothing like this. So he's bought it. Then he sees a square and a triangle. You know what? He's got to be a genius of unbelievable, unprecedented levels to think these guys are trying to con me, <laughs> which is genuine ordinary people coming in. Now, I'm being a little bit cagey because I don't want him to have the confidence to push, let me see that film. The same way that if you're doing a card trick, you don't want people touching your cards. If people go to snatch your cards because they think they've got the confidence to do that. But if you have an air about you, which is, you know, you can't do that. They don't do it, right? And it's a very simple case of the authority there was, I was the head dog, not him. And he was working for me. And it's important to lay that out immediately. So the, you know what, Ray, let's just go, right? There's nothing gives you more power than, I don't need you. Let's move on to another film expert, a guy called Bob Shell. He was the editor of Shutterbug magazine. I think it was called Shutterbug. He was in the UFO community. So he desperately wanted to be the guy who tests this film. So we meet him. I'm invisible at that time. In 1995, I don't exist. This is a film came from America, so I don't exist. But I want to be involved, right? So I'm making a documentary about this film. So when people see me, I'm today making a documentary about a film from yesterday. At least I'm there. A few people came over for us to interview. And Bob Shell was one of those people. And what we did was, Bob said, I need some film to test. I need to go beyond the visual test. I need to actually test the makeup of the film. So what do you need, Bob? We need, I need at least three frames. It's too valuable. Can't give you three frames to throw away. Because you're going to damage them and we're going to throw them away. He said, well, it doesn't have to be valuable film. It could just be something from the reel. Okay, well, we'll give you some from the trailer. Ray, we can always give him a little bit from the trailer, right? Yeah. Okay, then. So we cut off five frames from the steps sequence 
and make sure that those five frames have the square, square and the triangle on, because you know that's every few meters. You know, you don't, it's not every frame, the square and the triangle happens periodically. So we found the section we thought, okay, this is, boom, and gave him that film with a square and a triangle so he can now visually see it's a square and a triangle. And now he can do the chemical makeup as well. No image of alien on that film though, okay? He saw the film projected. He saw this film to test. So as far as he's concerned, it's real. So he goes away, he does the tests, and he goes on camera and he says, the film that I tested was shot in 1947 and developed soon after. And then somebody asked him, is it possible that this is 1947 film that somebody bought today and put images on today and developed it today? He said, no, because if this was the case, even if you had a 1947 film, which you kept in a lead box in a fridge, for all that time, there is what's called external exposure. So from radiation, you would get particles of the film exposing over the time. And when you film on that, that comes up as a cloudy, milky look. Okay. And he said, none of that was present. So no. Because people think you can do that. You know, you can buy a film from 1947 that you find somewhere. Somebody's got a stock. And then you shoot it now. And then suddenly it's, you know. Well, you can do that, but you, it won't pass the tests. It will only pass the edge marking test. It won't pass the other tests. Wow. So that whole 16 millimeter film business, that was one aspect that made me wonder about this because I knew about edge numbers and, and my dad was actually designated as a combat photographer in the army. Right. I mean, of course, this was before Vietnam, just by a couple of years. So uh, he didn't actually shoot any combat, but had there been a war, that's what he would have been doing. So he was actually assigned though, to shoot film and photographs of uh, military transportation vehicles, all kinds of experimental stuff that I know you dig. The land train, right? Didn't he take pictures yes. of that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, all kinds of yeah weird stuff. And of course, uh, different things as well. But that's where I learned to work with 16 millimeter film because he kept continuing to do that after, he, of course, he got out of the army and worked in advertising and would shoot different things. And so I, I kind of learned about that from a very early age. And that's what was impressive to me. It's like, man, if they can date this film, to at least, uh, well, it was 1947, or it could have been from the era of, uh, was it 67? Yes, it was It was 27, 47, or 67, but they knew it wasn't right. 27 because it might have been cellulose nitrate or something, It was yes. which was flammable ex and explosive uh, in the early days of film. And so then they were like, uh, it's either 47 or 67. And there was some reason that he says, I can't remember if it was in this last segment or, or, or later, one coming up later, there was a yeah. reason that they concluded it wasn't 67 too. They narrowed it down. So it became 47 because those edge markers, the square and the triangle, that's what they meant. They meant those three decades. So again, it's uh, I was wondering about uh, the techniques. Was he inspired by some of the techniques and tips and tricks that are used by document forgers? Because you and I, Scott, talked about this. It's like, well, you know they're going to date the paper and the ink and all that if you're trying to make a, a, a fake book or a forged document. And one trick they'll do is, of course, buy an old book of that era that they're trying to sell and cut the pages out and use that paper. Because if that's dated, well, there you go. Whatever this is on comes from that era. Or they will also take the paper, burn it, and use the carbon to make an ink. So if the ink is tested, 
we might have talked about this in the um, uh, Voynich Manuscript right. series. Yeah, yeah. But everything that's going to be tested about that document, even if it's a hoax, is going to come back and test positive. And I, what I love about this is that once they got the sign-off from Kodak, not a lot of other authorities initially asked for more authentication. That was enough for a lot of people. That, that's a good con man right there. It's brilliant because I feel like, too, I never dreamed that the analysis by the people at Kodak wasn't the entire role being looked at everywhere. Right. But he forced, like you would say in a, in a magic trick with cards, he forced them to look at this one bit, and he also postured them into feeling like they couldn't look at anything else. And on top of that, when he he really pulled the masterful stroke, and it's just like in the movie The Grifters, if anybody's ever seen it. <laughs> yep, such yep, an outstanding film. Right. But there's the one scene when they're pulling this big con, and uh, J.T. Walsh is like, well, we got everything right here in this back room. And it's an empty room. <laughs> he's like opening the door. Full to, of wires, yeah. Yeah, and he's trying to convince the guy they're trying to get all the money from that they've got all these servers in there or something like that. And there's nothing in there. Yeah, he was really pushing it too. Yeah. I mean, he was he could have been caught exactly. right there if the guy said, yeah, let me take a look. He's like, but he was like, come on, take a look, come on. The guy's, no, I don't need to. Come on, really, come on. He was really pushing it. Yes. What I loved also is that uh, it's stage magic. I knew exactly what he was talking about when he when he talked about, you know, he spun the film out and with his finger, he felt where the splice was. Right. And then he covered that part up. That's such basic, hand, you know, sleight of hand magic there. Uh, I'm going to give away a secret now. You know, the rings where people uh, join the rings. And again, I don't mind giving this away. That's actually done because your hand is covering up the open space in the I used ring. to love to do the ring trick. That was <laughs> the ring trick. And people, I was a kid. Yeah, you love it because yeah. it's like, how is that possible? Those rings are solid. I'm clanging them together. No, you're slipping the ring through through the hand, and what you don't see, you just you buy it. You sign off on it. Like, well, I guess they're solid. You saw the one that was solid. You didn't see the one with a break in it. Right. So again, I, I love all these little things that he that he's doing. But that is a big risk. If that Kodak guy had say like, give me the film. Come on, come on. Yeah. It's like I'm not going to sign off anything until I see a middle part of the film with an alien image on it, and I check that edge code there. Yeah. The whole thing would have been blown. So you're, <laughs> what a tense moment for him. Yeah. He's got to pull this off. Well, we got this next segment coming up, which is pretty interesting, because what they're going to be talking about is a little bit more about John Humphreys and his work. Because one of the things in the Fact or Faked show, the Fox one, is that, you know, they talked to Stan Winston on that, who was the consummate original special effects guy. And I actually worked on a commercial with him once myself. Mm. And mm-hmm. just unbelievable. Uh, I, I think I brought that up before. It's where the horses kick the football, the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. classic. Yeah. Yes. Winston. Is that Joe Pitka? They made the uh, the leg. That spot was Anthony Hoffman, the director. Um, oh, okay. But uh, oh, he was okay. with Propaganda Films. But anyway. I see. Yes. I digress. But anyway, Stan Winston worked on that. And um, I, I shouldn't say I worked with I didn't even meet him. But he, he, the footage came from him, and we had to composite it together and all that kind of stuff. Right, right. One of the things he says in the Fact or Fake special, and by the way, and we're going to talk about this in part two, there yeah, were things yeah. that he said and others say they said that got cut out, by the way. Right. Just about uh, yes. the veracity of the film. But that's for later. But he was just like, you know, this is pretty amazing. And he had his whole crew looking at it. They had this footage of them all looking at it. And just like, I don't know how somebody could do this that wasn't a special effects person. Right. And, right. well, guess what? John Humphrey is. And one one of the things that Spiro says is he's an artist first. He's a sculptor and an artist. Sure. But he's also, he's got his chops here with the special effects. So that's what's really interesting because it's not just about making the sculpture of the alien 
It's also about dissecting it, which is what we're going to hear about now. We're also going to hear a little bit more about, you know, where is Santilli in all this? He, you know, he he portrays himself as a major player in all the uh, stories that are associated with this film. But let's find out what Spiro says about some of Santilli's ideas when it comes to the sculpture. We came up with the ideas of making the film, how and what it will be. Santilli's suggestions were very, very stupid. Schoolboy ideas. He would say these ridiculous things. Antennas, we have antennas on his No, Ray. Antennas on the head. No, right? Because a doctor will look at this and laugh and walk away. We need them intrigued. So in the end, I just said to John, you know, John never met Ray until after the creature was made. I just said to John, he said, oh, you know, do you think I should speak to him? No. Ray's got nothing to do with the production. We're going to produce it and deliver it. And that's it. Because too many cooks, right? Everyone's got an idea. You ask three people, you get three ideas, you know. So I said to him, the bottom line is this. The buck stops with me. If I buy it, we do it. I want to hear the ideas. But if I don't buy it, we're not doing it. And that was it. The one time I let that go, and I was right. I shouldn't have let it go. I was right. My initial instinct was right, was when we made the brain, we made it out of two sheep's brains. So a sheep's brain is about the size of my my hand. So we put them side by side into a mold. And now we're going to then put a setting agent, something in there that's going to hold it all together. So John made the mold of the overall brain. And then we coated it with a latex skin. And then we then started to, to put the stuff in. John wanted to use raspberry jelly. And I said, John, it's too dark. I think we should use something, maybe gelatin, clearer, so you can see through it. No, 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 raspberry jelly would be good, because he's thinking in colour, right? And we did it with raspberry jelly. I don't know if you know this, we did two autopsies. So the first one didn't work, and that was the one that had the raspberry jelly. That was the one time I actually let another person suggest something, and I went against my gut feeling. So it was a case of being very, that's how it's going to be, right? And I'm not open for debate, that's how it's going to be. So... That's one time I was weak. And then when we made the second time, I said, John, we're doing it with gelatin this time. Look, you can't, it's a black ball. It's just black ball. And you couldn't see a thing. It could be anything. So we made it with gelatin. And even that slightly dark, but you could see bits of detail, a little bit of detail. And that's all you needed. It's a case of knowing the difference between what can be bought and what can be rejected. What smells right? What smells right here? We had an option of making it in colour, of course. And there was a debate about that. And I, and I said to John, look, if we make it in colour, what colours the alien? What colours the blood? Because suddenly we're in sci-fi mode again. Oh, green blood, you know, let's make it green. No, this is cuckoo. This is just Mickey Mousey stuff. That's not where we want to be. We want to be biologically sound, right? So if we make it red, it's too human. Not alien enough. But if we make it black and white, you know what? Could be anything. And they haven't got any one person saying, oh, green blood, really? Really? So an alien autopsy, fact or fiction, Stan Winston said a lot about the blood uh, in the alien and like how it was oozing out so evenly. And he was really impressed because it looked really good. So how did you do that? When you're Stan Winston and you're told what this is and how it is, then you go by that, that description and you don't deviate. They saw a head being cut with a saw and a brain being removed, which was perfectly wet and beautifully cored. So how do we create that? Inside 
the body? How do we cast it and keep it wet and keep it even? How do we do that? Can't do it. Well, we didn't do that. We made a sponge latex-covered alien. Nothing inside it. There was no brain inside it. So when we were cutting the head, we were cutting into a sponge head. Okay? And I'm telling you, John, don't push too hard because it will do this. Right, just very gently, 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 make it look like it's you know, it's a bit like the mime artist that, that lifts up the box and, and, and pretends it's heavy, and there's nothing there, right? It's, it's acting. So, John, you're soaring through a solid skull, right? So, John, make it look like. And if you watch how I filmed it, I made sure he got in my way, I made sure that you could, uh, you know, I can't get the best shot. So, if he did make a mistake, if the head did move too much, if it, uh, you're not going to see very much. Now, here's what I need to do is I need to do each shot and make it last three and a half minutes because each 50-foot reel of film I was using lasts about four minutes, okay? So I'm going to waste a little bit at the beginning, three and a half minutes. So I'm going to come to an end of a reel. So we manage it to come to the end of the reel when the head's been cut. Now I haven't got a problem of continuity because I'm filming it like a lunatic. It's not a locked camera. If it was a locked camera on legs... And the minute you cut and start again, it does that, right? It moves. And it's, okay, there was a cut there. So it was filmed the way it was filmed so that I could edit it later. So without looking like it's been cut and edited and it makes sense. 50-foot rolls of film, every three and a half minutes, three minutes. So we cut, we then took away the skull cap, emptied it because it's full of foam. We took away in the head and we emptied it. So we made a cavity. We then took the brain that we created, put it in. We coated it with fresh blood and put the cap back. And then we started filming again. And you take the cap off and we can't do this. You wasn't asked to do it the way we did it because you could do that, right? You can't have it all set inside the head. So when it's cut, it's already there. So Stan was absolutely right. The other thing is you have a body which is full of foam. It's a sponge. And what do sponges do? They soak liquids up. So what you do, you fill it with blood. You soak it till it's all soaked into the sponge. And then you've got a latex skin, which is keeping it all in. But you know what? Air pressure and downward forces, and they're pushing this fluid, and they want it, it wants to come out. And if you make a hole, it'll pour out. So what you do is you make it all wet. So when it's finally cut, John had some blood on the, on the actual blade of the scalpel. Just a little bit of blood there. Because... The first cut, if it wasn't deep enough, all you're going to do is get a score of the latex and there's no blood. And that would look really bad. So I said to John, John, we haven't got two goes at this, right? We did the first one and we had that problem where we cut it and you had to go and cut it again because it was thicker in that area. And you, you don't know how thick the latex is. You put it into the mold, you swish it around. And it just covers. But some areas it sits a bit more than somewhere. So if you've got a thicker bit of latex and you're trying to cut it with one go, it's actually going to take a couple of goes. So what we're going to do is you put some blood on the, on the scalpel. When you put it up to the neck, you tilt it ever so slightly so it's now running off the blade. And you score and you try and cut the skin. If there's a place where it doesn't go through because it's too thick or, or you didn't do it the first time, the blood's going to roll off your blade into the groove you just cut and look like it's cut. And then you're going to carry on. When we get to a place where we can cut filming, we'll go back and then cut it a few times and actually make a cut so the latex is broken, right? 
if it breaks the first time, we don't need to go back. But that's how we had to do it. So once he cut it, what happens is you've now allowed this soaking sponge from inside to seep. So you don't have tubes squirting and spurting and anything, just seeping out, which is what it would do, okay? That's what happened, and it started to pour. So as the camera went around, it just started to slowly dry. All of the internal organs were put in from behind. So the body was put on its front before we started. We opened it up, emptied out the sponge and everything, put the organs in, and then we brought it around and we sat it down, okay? So no one's going to see the behind, right? And it just sits there. Now, what my worry was that when you've got the body soaked in blood and you've had an incision in the back, is it's going to start to drop and there'd be a pool of blood on the table. So I made the table so that it works. Now, this table is one of the things I say to people. When they say to me, well, how can you tell us, how can you prove to us it's not real? Well, I can tell you, I put my credibility on the line, okay? It's a roulette table. I'm going to put all of my credibility on red. And I'm going to say, you will not find another autopsy table like this one anywhere in the history of the world, ever. Now, that's a quite a tall order because, you know what? My credibility is on the line. Because if you do find one, that's it. Not one person has found one because I designed it and I built it. So there isn't another one. I just did what I thought they would do. I got a sheet of steel, which was four feet by six feet length. Now that's a problem because an autopsy table would be bigger than six feet because human beings are bigger than six feet. So you would make it bigger to take different sizes. This table is five and a half feet long and the alien is five foot long. And I can prove this. I can show you in the, in the film and you can look at this. I'll show the frames to look for, right? So I put the six-foot sheet, I needed to wrap over the front, so I lost five inches at the front. Then what I've got is on the other end, I've got a little overlap. So I've got a five-and-a-half-foot table, okay, because I've only got a six-foot sheet. I then put a crease into the sheet, and then I got a, a drill, and I made tiny holes in a pattern that I drew. And then I got a punch, and I punched the holes to make them go inwards and a bit bigger. If you look at them now, you'll see that's how they are, right? So when the fluids go in, they will go through these holes. They would either go to the floor at this point, or I made a tray which sits under the table that it drops onto, and then it rolls down and goes into a receptacle. Because I knew this blood is going to settle and start to build up at the bottom where the body's sitting. There'll be a pool of blood. It would have been ridiculous, right? So I had to make this table work if I'm going to make the body work. One of those stainless steel trays was a modern stainless steel cooking tray. But it looked right. In context, you see the last frame. It's not just a tray you're looking at. You're looking at everything. But the table, as I say, it's a one of a kind. So is it fair to say, if you cannot find this table anywhere, and I've told you you can't, and I put my reputation on the line, is it fair to say, well, maybe I know something? Let's not say that there isn't any real film just yet, because that's the Santilli line. Santilli line is there was genuine film. It got destroyed. And then there was a few frames left. And then Spiros made this film, which is a reproduction of the film that was there. If that's true, any frame that has that table in it has to be my reproduction part, right? Now let's go a bit further. The suits that they're wearing. You will not find those suits anywhere in the world. So they are unique because I designed them and we made them. I cut the pattern and my girlfriend stitched it on her sewing machine. Okay. So these suits are 
not real. And I can prove it again a million times I can prove it. The visor is too small. You can't work with that little visor. Why would you have such a small visor like this? You'd have a big one like this, right? You'd, see, you'd be able to see what you're doing, but not unless I want, don't want you to see the face. I don't want you to see the person, so I, I made it that big, okay? So that's not practical. But that's not all. The suits have no air supply because they would be pressurized and nothing outside would affect the inside, right? But they're not. So for that going in and out, which means the air outside is going in now, has to be. At one point, we actually cut holes in the top of the head because they couldn't breathe in the suits. I originally shot the first film with my partner, Greg Simmons, who uh, he plays the soldier in the debris footage with the hand panels. He couldn't breathe in the suit. He's got asthma. And after the first one, he said, I can't do this again. So my girlfriend said, we persuaded her to step in and be the assistant. In the second film, it's her, not Greg. But there is a frame where you see Greg walk in and walk out. We got the suit. We may as well, you know, because I I had a suit made for me so that when I did the, the wider shots, I was always wearing a suit because if I was seeing a reflective surface anywhere, I can't monitor that. And later, NASA did that. NASA looked at all the reflective surfaces to see what they could see in the room. So the last thing I wanted was for them to see modern redheads and, and blondes or lighting or to see me in a Nike T-shirt, right, <laughs> for example. I had to be very careful. So I was wearing the same suit as they were wearing. And um, when I wore my suit, I filmed an original Bell & Howell filmo. One had a fixed lens, one fixed lens, and the other had three fixed the lenses. Lens, yeah. You can turn to wide-angle telephoto, what have you. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem I had was I didn't have two goes at this. Once I made the body and cut it open, now I can't go back and do it again. If it was a movie, we would have five or six bodies, and we would shoot it from different angles, and we would, we would do it again and again and again, and we would get every shot perfect. I didn't have that luxury. This was a one-take thing. And uh, whenever I stopped filming to change the film, I would stop the clock on the wall. So the first one was a good dry run. We didn't intend it to be, but it was a good dry run. And a few things happened which made the second film better. What we did do, which was a lot better in the second one, we knew our way around the body. We didn't have a rehearsal before. And the cutting of the skin, for example, you don't know till you cut it what it's going to do. And once you've cut it, it's too late. The other thing that happened by having to do a second one was we ended up with a damaged leg, a damaged right leg. That wasn't deliberate. That happened because the second one we made, we made in a hurry. It's an expandable foam that you pour into the mould and it reacts and bubbles and it fills the mould. And there was an air bubble caught in the knee. And what happened was when we took it out of the mould, the knee flopped. What do we do with now? Well, let's make it a damaged knee, right? So we cut the knee open. I sent John off to the butchers. He got a a knuckle joint and we put it into the leg and it looks like it's been shot from behind. That was the idea. I don't know if you know this, but I'm I'm a little squeamish. No. So I didn't didn't enjoy all the (laughs) sheep brain discussions. I mean, I think I I could, like if I had to do this gig, if I had been there and had to put all these guts inside this thing, I could have done it. I could suck it up and get it done, but. That's making the sausage. Yeah. Yeah. I just I do know that you don't like a shredded barbecue. I don't, but that's not about squeamishness. That's just about texture. (laughs) Texture. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. The the juiciness and the barbecue sauce and the the shreddedness, you might have lost it. I don't. Love the, it. Uh, when the sheep's intestines came out. Yeah, I'm not considered 
a true North Carolinian if I don't I like know. the uh, pulled okay. pork barbecue. Actually, I do eat it. I do eat it. I just don't love it as much as everybody else. I hear you. I totally hear you. One of the things I thought was really fascinating was when they talked about the knee, because when you watch um, factor fiction, right. then you hear these pathologists that the one that he mentioned earlier, um, Sirowect. He was another guy that you heard a lot about, like Melvin Belli, you know, with the, with the Zodiac case and all, you know... <laughs> That's another nod to that era is that these people that would pop up in uh, popular culture and on television especially, we weren't so tired and jaded of all these names. They were kind of famous. Now, half the notifications I get for entertainment stuff, I don't know who these people are. So <laughs> there's too many of them. A good half of you are going to have to go away because I can't keep up. You know, that's another thing. It's like I, I knew that name. It's like Sirowet. Yeah. yeah, he's he's weighed in on some big right. cases. Look, he's not coming out and saying – definitely an alien. He's just saying like, look, this does not look human. That's what I know. And the procedures seem to be fairly authentic that if these people in the suits on the film aren't pathologists per se, they may have had some surgical training. Yeah. And of course, Mr. Wecht or Dr. Wecht probably, I and I don't know, he may have later maintained after it came out that it was a hoax. He may have been another one of the ones that said, hey, when we were in there, I said it was a hoax and they cut it. <laughs> so like, yeah, everyone can easily say that, I guess. But sure. um Dr. Weck said the injury wasn't consistent with blunt force trauma right? and that it seemed like another kind of injury, like being close to a missile or something like that, which is yeah, so impact. great. And, and when Spiros talks about that, and it's like this all plays together. But the reality was that all came from an accident with the expanding <laughs> foam. Exactly. Which is yeah. like they turned something that could have been like, oh my God, we ruined this one. They turned it into something. They went and got that bone from the butcher and shoved it in there and it's pretty convincing looking. I mean, it's enough to kind of make you go, ooh, ooh. Part of it is that you look, you don't want to look. Uh, it makes you squeamish. You you can't look away. It's a happy accident. Yeah. And that, that little thing right there spawned much more discussion. And especially like when uh, Dr. Cyril Wecht said, I don't know, it could have been a missile explosion. Like, did it get shot down? Is that what happened? Right. Then you it's know, a whole it just, new it, story about Roswell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It fuels more uh, speculation. But these are two separate stories. Roswell and what happened, what really happened in 1947 and what you see at the beginning of alien autopsy fact or fiction. Those are other eyewitnesses of the real incident or something that happened. This is riding its coattails and, and using that fuel to gas up its own story. So it, it's also perfectly dovetails into that because it's like, well, there you go. You've all heard about this mystery. Here's the film from it. And it elucidates the visual aspect that everybody just had to imagine before, but now you can see it. So it's coloring in this blank spot in this mystery that we've all had with us uh, since that happened. And it's showing you. And so, yeah, there are things that can be argued. Uh, did that look real? Is that the way it would happen? What about the props that you see and, and all the artifacts? But uh, for people that were willing to give it more consideration, well, here you go. So it, it fulfilled that, that need. Hi, I'm Hoover. And when I'm not editing my Transformers podcast called Four Million Years Later, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. And now, back to the show. All right, we're getting down to the nitty gritty here. This next section is about the props. And honestly, mm. I, again, I just have, 
so much respect for how this went down. <laughs> like, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of work. And it's one of the things that Spiro said in the course of our interview. I can't remember exactly where, but he was like, this isn't just about the alien. Right. You can make the alien. It's actually may, might not even be that difficult to make the alien. But what about everything else? Everything you're seeing on camera, the phone, the suits the people are wearing, the autopsy table. So the thing about this phone is, and I, I think this was in the um, the BBC show, The One. There was a short segment yes. that we have. We'll mm-hmm. have a link to that where they talk about this. And it, it may have been in some other places too. But the thing about it was is that, yes, you could get this phone in 1947, but not as a consumer. It was available, though, and in use by the military. And so what's so great about this, and this comes back to Spiros's approach to all this, is like, all right, here's this thing. We know people are going to try to salute this. They're going to try and track all this stuff down. And when they track this phone down, not only will they find that it was there that year, but that it was restricted to military use. And it confirms that path of belief that this is a military operation. This is a military autopsy that's happening because there's that phone. It can't just be somebody's house. <laughs> it can't just be a set. It's another part of the con because you can't make it too obvious, like, you know, writing on it, the 1947 government phone right. or you know, army phone is that what he knew is that you, you might have some people objecting saying, well, okay, my grandmother didn't have that phone in the forties. Like that's not possible. But if you did the research, you could find out like, no, it is possible. And the military and the government were using that type of phone, not for everything, but it was available. So it's a possibility that leaves it open. Yes. And so you're going to hear him talk about that in a minute, but it is one of my favorite parts, the phone, the clock, and also just the fact that, you know what, we might be on a set here. Had you ever thought when you looked at this, (laughs) anybody who wondered if it was real or not, that you only saw two walls? When you were in there the whole time in like 18 minutes, there were just two walls. I don't know if we're talking about this now or saving this for later. I'll talk about this now because I'll probably forget later. Uh, is that when I first saw it, that was one of the things that kind of put some doubt in my mind. Oh, really? Is, you bumped on that, as they say in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> well, of course, I'm not looking up on the uh, the crummy early internet uh, what phones were, were put out when. I'm not going to get... Uh, too into the weeds with that then. But, you know, I've had a lot of relatives in the military and heard stories and descriptions. And and again, my dad had some photographs that he had with him around, uh, at least this would be the early 60s, and hearing stories. And it's like, okay, in 1947, wouldn't that autopsy room look a little more sophisticated? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it does not look like a white tiled, which are used to when medical procedures are done. Right. That uh, if some goo got on the wall, you're going to have to cut out that uh, portion of drywall <laughs> and repatch the wall. Yeah, it didn't seem right. And if it was going to be, okay, so let's say you were at the uh, the 509th Bomb Group wing at Roswell and uh, they had to do it right there. These things are rotting horribly, which is, that's also part of that original story. Yes, talked about by one of the nurses apparently that was there so they have to do it right away those things are evaporating and so there's a makeshift morgue where they can uh, do an autopsy right away it's like it still wouldn't look like that so right look they did the best they could for a flat in north london and hats off to him with a window the, again the window was a nice touch the yeah. observation uh the operating theater window there was a nice touch and it adds another character. It's what we call production value. And Indeed. also, Scott, beyond the two walls, mise en scene. 
<laughs> yes. which is the, it's the world that exists outside of the frame that you see. It's a very complicated uh, and difficult term, but that's what I learned in film school. It's the world you're creating beyond the frame lines that your imagination fills in. So when the production value is decent enough, um, they don't have to get too elaborate. But like, yeah, I, I, I did bump on that a little, and I wondered... Um, I don't know if it would kind of, yeah, it's, that's not ringing true. And again, I didn't, it was enough to make me write it off because again, I knew that there would be props in there that there are some wonks that are going to look that up. Did that tray exist at that time? I wasn't going to do it, but I, I knew that uh, that's one of my impressions upon seeing it the first time. It's like, God, I'll bet there's going to be people that research this stuff. Was that tray available? Did the army use that type of saw? All these things. And uh, yeah. it's also another clever scene. I thought in the movie, Gattaca, where Ethan Hawke's character knows he's going to be checked out. He's also trying to sell a story of another persona that he's adopted. So he leaves a hair in a comb that's in his desk. Now, most people aren't going to check that out. No one's going to go into his desk. But Uma Thurman does, because she just wants to make sure, is he what he says he is? And of course, she has that hair analyzed. And there you go. He's checked out. DNA-wise, he must be the real deal. But of course, that hair is actually from Jude Law, who he's borrowing his identity. There you go. If you find that, that's going to seal the deal even more. Uh, the other interesting thing about Gattaca is that my yeah. uh, uh, my good friend Maya Rudolph, that's her very <laughs> first movie, 1997. That's right. Yeah. She was the nurse. Yeah, she was uh, the delivery nurse, yeah. Delivering the baby. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, again, the amount of thought that went into all this uh, and trying to cover your tracks, and of course, there's always going to be a few things that you couldn't get to or you forget about, but you just have to uh, throw caution to the wind at some point and go with it. All right, so we're going to come back into this next little segment here with Spiros. And this starts out with another thing that's really fascinating about this. It's the intrinsic financial value of this film. Mm. It's big. And the amount of work that he has to do to protect it from losing its value, either for the reason of it as an investment, but also to protect the illusion of it. Because those two things go hand in hand. They're right. going to lose everything if it gets out that it's fake, but they're also going to lose everything if someone else is able to sell frames from it or have it leak out. So he's, he's yeah. running around trying to make sure that anyone that ever handles it, A, isn't able to take anything away from it and sell it themselves, and B, isn't able to look close enough at it to realize that it might not be real. <laughs> you mean the mise-en-scene? Uh, no, I didn't mean that, but yes, it was nice. I always think of mise en place where you get all your food ready before you. But yes, yes. I do remember I bring that up because from, uh, from my communications degree in studying film, but I did not really remember what it meant. So thank you for that. Again, uh, and I said it again because I think it, I may have uh, forced the French, uh, the crummy French accent too much and said mise en scène. Which is probably incorrect. And you're going to get get, uh, French speakers saying like, uh, please stop. All right, let's get back to Spiros. If you had one frame of this alien, it was worth £20,000 to the News of the World newspaper. That one frame. Forget a whole movie, a little frame. So any one of the people that were working in the crew, £20,000 was a lot of money. So how difficult would it have been for somebody to just, you know what, they won't know it's me. When I went to the lab to get the film processed, I made arrangements to go in after the place was closed and to stay with the engineer. But it's a very valuable film and I don't, I don't want to let it out of my sight. Please don't think, I don't think you're going to do anything with it, but it's important to me. Please can we do this? Yes, you can. So I went along. I was with me, John Humphreys, and with um, Geraldine. And we all went out. It was about midnight. 
and we went into the place and the guy put it through the machine and when it came out every roll was 50 feet so he would clip a little bit off and splice it and I would pick up that little piece and put it in an envelope and I was following him around picking up the little pieces you know off the cutting room floor into my envelope because any one of those frames was worth 20 grand I wanted to just get rid of it. I didn't want to use it again because it, it wouldn't marry to this one. So I couldn't use I couldn't use footage from this one to this one and, and make up a good one, right? I couldn't do that. The other thing is that um, Ray had told people he's got an alien autopsy and they want to see the alien autopsy. And we were working to a schedule and it was going to be delivered on a certain time. And it didn't work. I've got to film it again. So he's now saying, but I've got these people coming and I've got to show them the film. I'm going to look like an idiot and we haven't got any more money. So how are we going to do it again? I said, well, I'm going to pay for it and do it again. It has to be done again. And I did it off my own back. He then said, look, I've got to show them something because all he had was a tent footage. It was already blown out of the water, right? So he had to show them something. I said, Ray, listen, if you show them this film in any length, they're going to catch you. It's not right. So I said, you can only show segments. And he did show the film to a few people, of which Philip Mantle was one. Uh, another guy called Maurizio of Barta, I think his name was. He was he's seen it. What did it for Philip Mantle was when, I, when Philip Mantle met me, he thought the film was real. He had, it had credibility. And when he met me, I, I showed him an awful lot of stuff, a lot of our research. He knew my name because my name was mentioned to Bob Kiviat, who made the Fox program. So my name was already in the mix. When I appeared, he knew of me. Then what he did was he didn't volunteer that he'd seen a film in Santilli's office. So for me to be able to say to him, well, we shot another one, and then I described areas of that film that he'd seen. And he said, well, I saw this film. And I told him things in that film made it obviously, you know, because had I not done that, wouldn't it be the fantastic, the perfect thing for Ray to do is to say, well, this is the original film and this is the fake film. And look, this is different from that, but it's similar. And he could have used it, right? But because I've described it before and I've got a few frames of it, you know, uh, a few bits of, you know, not a damaged leg and the reason it's got a damaged leg and all the other little bits and pieces, I know too much. That's the problem uh, for it to be anything else. So the question is this. If this is a genuine film and there are real frames within it, let's suppose it's fake and there are real frames within it, it's fair to say that we can eliminate every frame that has an autopsy table on it. It's also fair to say we can eliminate every frame that has the suits in it. We know the guy behind the window is fake because he's come forward and, and he's, he's, he's spoken. So that guy behind the window also any shot with him in that is fake. When you have a film that has a beginning and an end and a continuous shot all the way through, everything from that film belongs to itself. So if you've got a shot at the beginning of an alien head, but it carries on moving, carries on moving, carries on, and then you've got the table, then the shot with the head at the beginning has got to be fake because there's a table in the same shot. It's no cuts, no edits. If you do this exercise and go through the film, you will end up with shots of flashes, nothing else, just white flashes, which you don't know what they are. So are they the real film? <laughs> are the white flashes the actual genuine real film? No, there is no real film. I have asked Santilli openly through newspapers as a challenge. 
show us the real film. Didn't show us any real film. Okay, show us the real frames within my film. And I'm telling you, I'm the only one that ever edited this. But if there was any genuine film within this film, somebody else other than me must have edited it in. So let's talk to that person. He or she can tell us where the frames are, right? You know how it is. You sit and edit a program. We know every frame. You know, in the old days, we used to watch it pre-roll before an edit and roll it. We know every frame, right? We've got everything mapped out. So when you do an edit, if somebody says, well, where did this shot come from? I'll tell you before what happened, and I'll tell you what happened afterwards, because I know, because it's deliberate. So somebody else must have put these frames in. As a filmmaker, I will go as far as say that the challenge of making a fake film marry up to an original film, like Santilli will have us believe, is a monumental task, much bigger than what I did. If I did do that, I want the credit for that because that's huge. How did he do that? How did he marry this shot with that shot so beautifully? Watch Ben Hur and the guy's wearing a Rolex watch. You know, this is you know with with, with loads of money to do this with no no crew, right? I, you know, everybody multitasked, design the set, build the set, design the creature, have John sculpt it and then build it, make all the all the bits and pieces, get the props that were right for the year, and design a room to work so that I can film it. I've sent you a a plan of my design of the set. It's basically a standard set of two flats, okay? So you've got a back wall and you've got the side wall. On the side wall, you've got a window and it's set within a room. So it's sitting in the middle of a room. So behind that window, there's a little corridor between the real wall and my fake wall. So the actor can walk into that area and stand in a new room. To the right of that flat, there's a door that belongs to the real room where you enter the room from the house. Now the other fake wall, which is where the clock is. That wall is sitting in front of the original wall, as you can see from the plan. And behind it, we've got all the electrics. I've wired up all the uh, outlets to 110 volt. I wired it in case I wanted to use it. I didn't, at the time I was making it up as I go along. And I just thought, you know what, to run a bit of wire there is not a big deal. I just did it. It worked, but never, I never used it. Now, if you look at the, the autopsy, to the right of the table, there's an, there's an outlet on the right hand, on the wall there. That was wired in and working, never used it. Now, over the other side, we've got the one that I plugged the clock into. That had to work, right? So behind it, there was a transformer. And you can see from the plan, it's plugged into the wall. And everything worked. Even the fluorescent tubes that I had above me were 110 volt. The light that fluctuates across a tube is countable. And a film is a perfect clock. And in my case, you've got 24 frames a second. So it's not difficult to watch the film and put timing to it. Now, if you put the flashes of the light, because there is a very slight flicker, if you now measure that in a lab, you will be able to determine those lights are 240 volt and X amperage. And you can do all of that because it's just seconds. That's what it is. It's fractions of seconds. So I had to make everything the correct thing. So the... Now, I couldn't have lighting in the studio because I didn't want any reflective surfaces to see external light. So I had available light, which was just the fluorescent lights as a blanket flood. And I used fluorescent because it does give a nice flat light. And I also had lighting from the windows 
in the daytime because so I did some footage um, early on. I did some stuff in the daytime, but as it got darker, of course, it, the light dimmed, and I had shutters on the windows there. So here's something I've never shared with anybody. You guys will get it immediately, but somebody who does not doesn't know about these things won't, right? And they wouldn't have even thought about it before. If this was a room, a genuine laboratory, it would exist somewhere in the world. Somebody somewhere has been in this room. It's a laboratory within a, a government building. It could be a hospital. It could be a, 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 an army facility. It could be, but it, somebody has been in this room. And unless we're to believe they built the room specially for this one event and never used it again, unlikely, right? They must have done other things in it. So there must be photos and film of other things with this room. There is nothing in the history of the world ever with this room. But let's not leave it at that. If this is a genuine room, there are four walls. If it's a film, at best, you've got three walls. Because we've all heard of the fourth wall, right? Break the fourth wall. Well, the fourth wall is us. It's me filming. Well, in this case, you've only got an L-shaped wall. And there is not a single shot in this alien autopsy where you can see this wall or that wall. It doesn't happen. Think about that. You can see this wall because I've, I've made this wall for you to watch. Look at this. It's got a clock on the wall. It's got a clock. And there's this, you know, let's have a look at that wall. Make a big deal about the wall. What about this wall? It's got a window. It's got a telephone, a sign on the wall. I want you to see this wall. I've got a lot of trouble for you to see this wall. There's no walls here for you to see. Because, you know, the other side of the room was another set, debris footage set, with a little tent that I built with tables and the stuff on there, the alien spaceship, and, you know, that wasn't supposed to be in the same room, right? So that's on that side, and that's on this side. As it happens, you don't see any wall this side and no wall that side. The law of probability of the suits being fake, the table being fake, there not being four walls tells you it's a production. The minute you start to eliminate all the things that might be real and the things that we know are fake, there are no things left that are real because it's there to be seen, right? You can't make things up. It's, that's what it is, right? So the idea of this, it being a genuine room somewhere, every shot that Santilli will tell us, eventually they've got to do this, right? Eventually Santilli has got to say, well, these are the ones, the frames that are real. Before he does that, I'm going to make a prediction. There will be no fourth wall. There'll be no third wall. And there will be no suit. And there will be no autopsy table. So what's left? Very close, uncoherent, out of focus, nothing. If it was in a government institution, you know what? It fits, right? Because it wasn't a, a general thing. Now, as it happens, I had a girl in America that bought props for me and stuff. And when she phoned me up, she said, I've got a phone. Okay, how much is it? It was. It cost me thirty-five dollars, and I said, "Great, let's get it." Right, you know. The following day, she phoned me. She goes, "Listen, I don't know if this is interesting, but I've been offered an upgrade kit for that phone." I said, "Well, what's in the upgrade kit?" He said, "Well, there's a, she says there's a little Bakelite mouthpiece that goes on onto the thing like this. There's a little Bakelite clip that you put on your shoulder so you can work without, you know, the clips on it. And there's a curly wire." And I said, "How much is that?" And she said, sixty dollars." I said, the only phone, the phone only costs $35, right? Why do I need it? Because I told her it was for a music video. She said, well, if the guy's going to hold the phone and walk around the room, how's it going to go past the, the length of this cable? But with the curly wire, that can go right across the room. And I thought, well, you know what? A surgeon would do that because they're taking notes. You know, they they would want to be able to travel. The fact that they wouldn't have a phone in that room is irrelevant. 
for our purposes because I'm going to shine a big spotlight on it now, okay? You're in an environment, you're wearing a suit because you don't want to catch the germs and you've got a phone with an open mouth, please give me a break, right? But it smelt right. It's back to my granddad, right? If it looks right and it, you know what? Go with it. If it feels right and it looks right, go with it. And that's one of the things that looked right, smelt right. But the other thing was I was concerned about sound on the camera. I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. Did they have sound on that 16 millimeter film at that time? Could they have sound or would they have an external recording source? And I thought, no, you know what? I would want to record if I was doing this and I was a professor of whatever and I wanted to analyze this to death. I don't want to miss the bits when you're changing film. I want to hear everything, right? So I'm going to record the whole lot so that I can play it back, irrespective of what's on the film. So we put an external microphone hanging from the ceiling, which is correct for the time, as insinuating that it's doing one of two things, or if not both. It's recording what the doctors are saying in the room. Oh, look, it's got a crystal on the heart. Never seen that before. You don't know what they're saying, right? But the other thing, it could be, it could be an intercom microphone so the other guy behind the window can hear what they're saying so they can talk to each other. It works both ways. And I thought, okay, we're not going to explain it ever. Just leave it there. Leave it hanging. Let them decide what they want it to be. Got a guy behind a glass window. Why is he wearing a mask? Because I don't want you to see his face, right? Now, if I don't mention that, you're thinking, well, medical procedure, everybody's there, of course he's got a mask on. He's behind a window, but you're not going there. You're not going there because you're not, you want to buy this. You want to see an alien. You're looking at the alien. You're, you're, you're looking at the whole, you're not looking at his mask. It's not important, but it is important to me because if I had the real guy there, you'd see him and then his friend will see it and say, oh, it's Gareth, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so there's too many things that tells you this doesn't make sense. Here we are again, taking a look at the big picture. The magician is controlling what you're paying mm. attention to. Every single thing in this video, from the props, the phone, the microphone, uh, right. the man behind the window, all that stuff is working together to distract you from the veracity of the film itself. Yeah. All right. Well, this next section that's coming up, ask the question is it maybe that stuff is working a little too well. Ooh, what do you mean by that? Well, it turns out people are so convinced that this film is real, they don't believe a word of what Spiros is saying. <laughs> so they think he's part yeah. of a disinformation campaign. What do you think at this point, listener? I mean, you you've been with us this long into this episode. Where are you coming down? And have you watched the film? Did you stop to watch the film? Now, the bigger question is, if you believe Spiros and you look at everything surrounding alien autopsy, fact or fiction, how would it reframe <laughs> any other ideas you have if something else like this surfaced? Mm. I think one of the most convincing things about Spiros's position is his absolute willingness to meet you in court about it, which is what you're going to hear about <laughs> here coming up. And I think that that's when you say, when he says... He, he is calling people out and he just say, hey, look, there's nothing about my story that you can disprove. Right. I get death threats. How dare you hide this from the human race? This is important to us. How dare you do this and how dare you do that? I've had that. Then at first it worried me. And then I realized something, which was, you know what? They're not the boss of me and they're not even brave. I say this openly. You have a conversation and have it with me. I don't hide. You guys ask me to come on the show. You know what? Anytime you want. 
because I don't hide from anybody. You ask me any question, I'm going to answer you, right? I answer honestly. And if I don't know, I just say I don't know. Simple as that. My story never changed, ever. It is what it is. It's been 25 years. It is what it is. But here's the thing I say to you. It's a boxing match, okay? I'm the champion of the world, and I'm in the ring. And if there are any contenders, they need to get in the ring with me. If Santilli got in the ring with me, he'd be in big trouble. He won't get in the ring with me. And I'm pushing and I'm pushing, and, and he, he's got no answer. Recently, I had a, a lady, I won't mention her name. I, I do have a Facebook page, uh, a group, which is called Alien Autopsy Fact Files. And if you go in on that, you join that, you will see the thread. So she's on there. But the bottom line is this. She did an interview with another gentleman who thinks this is real. And this gentleman believes that I'm being paid by the men in black to say that it's not real. He did an interview with this woman, did a whole hour presentation about why this is real. And they used my footage. I then put a, a takedown notice on YouTube because I own the copyright. I have a registration in the, in the Library of Congress. It's my film. I own the copyright to the fake uh, cameraman's interview that we did, uh, the debris footage, the alien autopsy, the design, everything. It's, it's mine. Now, I then said to this lady, you've been duped. It's not real. And I wouldn't mind, but I'm being defamed within your film because you're saying I'm a liar. So I know you don't know but it's not true. So I've given it a takedown notice. I'm happy to talk to you. If you want to talk to me about it, ask me anything you want. I'm happy to talk to you, but it's my material. It's a commercial film. It's not an archive film. It doesn't belong to the A. Anybody is mine, okay? And for the record, I've never charged anybody for the use of my film. Not once have I ever said, if somebody asks me and I feel what they're doing is fair, I've never once said, pay me. And in fact, if I've not let somebody use it, they don't not use it. And if I've let someone use it, I've never charged them. So this is important. You know, I'm not here to make a buck. I'm not doing that. Because otherwise, my credibility would be slightly tarnished because people would say, oh, he's just he's in it for making money. You know, he would say that. But I'm not. So this woman did a counter claim on YouTube. It's a serious thing. Because YouTube says to you, if you, if you make a counter claim, you have to certify that what you're saying is true and real and that you stand by it. And you know that you've got to say, I'm the owner, I certify that I'm the owner, and I've got every right to do this. And if, you, if they do a counterclaim, they have to do the same thing. Well, this is what the position I found myself in. I got a, an email from YouTube which said, there's a counterclaim, and you need to file a legal defense to her via your lawyers to take it to court so that we don't remove it. So now I've got to spend money. So I phoned my lawyer and I said, look, I've got this thing. Can you fire a letter off for now? And, da, da, da. and he said to me, have they not seen your, your, your copyright registration? There shouldn't even be a conversation, right? I said, well, this is what's happened. She's made a claim and she's justified that, that she has permission to use my film from Ray Santilli. So here's the problem Ray Santilli will have if this went to court. So, Miss Santilli, you say this is your film. Show us. Show us a 1947 film that you say you have. And if you can't, case dismissed because it doesn't exist, right? You don't have a claim on this film because I do. So you must have a 47 film, a genuine 47 film that I don't have. And that's what you're leaning on. So let's see it. And it falls down there. So she said, 
my claim is backed by Ray Santillia, who supports me and has given me permission to use the film. So we fire off the letter and Santilli backs off. This happened six weeks ago. And Santilli didn't back her, right? Where he said, you got permission to use it. As soon as it hit the fan, he's no longer there. He's not reliable anymore. And I said to her, can you see you have no one to lean on now? They've put you up, they've set you up, and I can sue you now. I can sue you and you have to then sue ghosts. And I'm not going to sue you. I said to her, but I need you to re remove what you're doing and I need you to acknowledge that you made a mistake. I can't leave it be because the other guy who thinks it's real thinks that he's got a right for you to use it. Well, I won't use it and I hear, I hear what you're saying and all you had to do is tell me. I said, no, but you're the one that issued a claim, right? I did tell you and you didn't remove it. I then made it remove it and then you came back. You want the fight. All right, so it seems like Santilli is pretty good at protecting this project and the idea of it. He's yeah. keeping his cards very close to the vest. But yeah, he's very cagey, I think it's fair to say about this. And he's, at this point, made literally millions of dollars off of it. But to Spiros's point, when it comes time to stand up in court and prove the film's authenticity, he always seems to back down, or with like a lie detector test uh, challenge. And something that kind of points to that comes up in the, uh, it's a point that's highlighted in the British television show, Eamon Investigates with Eamon Holmes, uh, which is an investigative journalist documentary television show. I made a note here about something similar. So in April 1995, Ray Levine, who was the features editor for News of the World at the time, and that would be, uh, his time there would be 1995 to 99, uh, he meets Ray through one of his reporters about Ray's story, that he had some impossible, sensational footage, and they had to see it. Of course, News of the World, like the National Enquirer, very interested in UFO stories uh, as well as their, their, their readers are. So this gentleman, Ray Levine, says, you know, other newspapers at the time, he was shopping this idea around. He said that they had offered uh, about 30 to 40,000 pounds for exclusive rights to this, but they were going to make uh, as much money as possible. It's understandable. And so other newspapers had offered that sum, but Levine says that uh, the news of the world, they prided themselves on offering more, topping other offers. So they offered 50,000 pounds to see the tape. And the way that uh, Ray Levine explains this in, in the clip, and we'll have a link to this because it's, it's a pretty decent, I think, overview investigation for a television documentary. At least it shows you from Ray Santilli and Gary Shufield's perspective what they went through and what's examined, uh, what comments of theirs are examined. It's a pretty good look at that. According to Ray Levine, he was thinking that uh, Ray would just think it was like a, a midnight under the lamppost handoff. He would hand over the tape he gets a big envelope full of money. They part ways and uh, nope, you bought it as is. Whatever's on the tape, that's yours. I keep the money. But it didn't happen like that. So what Levine says is that Ray was giving excuses why it couldn't be seen immediately. So then the newspaper tells them like, look, we're only going to do this deal after publication. Then you'll get your money. And only publication is going to happen after they have this tape verified by a number of experts. And Levine says that's when Ray gets very, very nervous. And after that meeting, all the contact evaporated and uh, they don't hear from Ray again. So he's either being very protective of it or there's something that maybe he doesn't want people to look too deeply into. 
All right. Well, as we wrap this up for tonight in part one of this series, we have to ask this question. Was this the biggest and most successful paranormal hoax in the history of mankind? So successful that the very man who crafted the film can't even prove that it's not a hoax. Well, almost. Spiros was pretty thorough. He covered every base. Let's get the 10,000-foot view from him about the big picture of all of this and how it all worked and some of the machinations that made it come to pass. And we're also going to find out that as thorough as Spiros was, he actually slipped up in one very particular place. And that slip up may be the easiest way for him to prove he's telling the truth. By the way, it turns out the alien autopsy footage is registered with the Library of Congress even, but it wasn't Spiros who did that. So we're going to hear about that too. So let's go back to him this one last time for tonight and find out directly from him what he thought the original plan was for this film. They had an idea and they were he thought mm-hmm. they were all on the same page and following through with it. But it turned out he was the only one that thought that. His cheese got left out in the wind. And now we're going to hear him explain when he knew that he had been shafted. The idea was this. I made sure at the beginning that we would make a film that we would give to broadcasters free. We would have them investigate it. And then when they can't tell us what it is, I would then make the answer to what it is. And we would then make money from that. Ray agreed. So what he did, he gave it free to Channel 4 in the UK. What I'm telling you now is important that you know the real situation because there is no reason why he would give it for free to Channel 4 if I'm not telling the truth, right? So he gave it to Channel 4 for free. This is on the record. You can check it, okay? Channel 4 made a documentary about it, and he was now able to go to Fox in America and say, we're making shows in the UK about it. They're taking it seriously. Why don't you? And sold it to them for $300,000 on a repeat. So it wasn't a case of uh, forever. They could have to pay again if they want to repeat, right? And he kept home video rights. And he kept a load of stuff, right? So it was an ongoing money-making machine. I'm not to know about this. I'm in England. I haven't got a clue. I don't know they've done this deal. I don't know that the first I heard about it was... Good news, Fox is making a special about it. Well, that's good because we can't go public until Ray has recovered his original money. Now, the original money was borrowed from Santilli from a guy called Volker Spielberg, a German producer. Now, Volker said, I'll give you the money, but I want it back. I'm not playing here. I'll give you the money, but I want it back. Ray said to me, look, Volker will give us the money. Now, Bear in mind, the budget at the time was about £70,000. That's what it would cost if you came to me and said, how much do you want to make this? Ray said, there's no way we can get anywhere near that. So I said to him, Ray, let's do it 50-50. I'll pay half, you pay half. Because I've got my crew, I've got my whole thing, so basically I'm going to do all my stuff I'm going to do free. So 50-50. If you get about 30000 35000 we can do this. Volker said, I'll put up the thirty grand, thirty-five grand. So that's what happened. Now, Ray said, what happens if one of your crew sells it before we've made our money back? I said, they won't. They're all trustworthy. I don't trust them. So let's sign a non-disclosure agreement that nobody will discuss this again until it's in public domain. Nobody must discuss it or talk about it until it's in the public domain. When I place it in a public domain, you're free to do what you want. Okay, great. But I need to recruit my money. 
okay, how are you going to do that, Ray? What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a souvenir VHS tape and I'm going to sell it to enthusiasts as the collectible thing of the autopsy. And he was charging at the time, if I remember correctly, £50 for a VHS tape. So $75 for a VHS tape. A lot of money. But he had to recoup his money, right? So I thought that's what he was doing. He was selling, he was selling the VHS. He recouped over and over again with the Fox program. But he didn't sell us. He got paid there. So he said, well, you know, obviously until, they, until we make our thing, well, we haven't recouped yet. We're not selling enough VHSs. So we haven't recouped yet. And we waited and we waited. Now, meanwhile, I was working with Santilli on other projects. I was making Beatles programs and I was making uh, a thing. We did a thing called the, the Four Tenors, which is a Christmas thing, singing carols. He was on my payroll. He was making me money on another level. And we became friends. I, I had no reason to disbelieve him. And at the same time, he was keeping me in food. So I was making money. So it wasn't a case of sitting here, waiting for this to come to fruition, and no one's making any money. So I let it go. You know, we haven't made enough money. We haven't made enough money. The bell started to ring when I was in Hong Kong one year. And I saw it on, a, on TV in the hotel room in Hong Kong in Chinese. And I said, Ray, they're, they're, I feel the phone number. It's on, Hong, it's on Hong Kong. It's on, it's on television. Oh, they're bootlegging it and uh, no one's paying for it. And I said, well, why don't we sue them? And he said, it's a military film. We don't own it. How can we sue them? They think it's a military film. If we tell them we're going to sue them, but I said, game's up, right? So, okay, what we're going to do? Well, just wait. Let's keep our powder dry. We'll wait and see what happens. And we'll eventually, we'll, as soon as we break even, we'll make the documentary and then we'll start making some money. In 2005, Ray and Gary alerted me that there was a movie on the go. We've been offered a movie. What do you think? Should we do this movie? And I said, how much are they paying us? And he said, no, we're doing it for fun. And I said, so we haven't said anything about this film for 10 years. We're out of pocket, 70 grand. And we're going to give it for fun to a major movie, a feature film. He said, yeah, you know, I thought it'd be good. I said, Ray, don't we have enough fun? I said, no, nah, I don't think so. We've waited 10 years. Let's not do the film for free. If they were paying us, then we'd, we'd let the cat out of the bag, right? We'd tell the story. Anyway, they left my office and did it without me. And when I first found out about it, John phoned me up, my friend John Humphreys, and he phoned me up and he said, just to let you know, I've been asked to make another alien for this film for Warner Brothers. Is it okay? And I said to him, well, John, are they paying you? He said, yeah, they're paying me very well. I said, okay, well, you've got to do it, right? Now, I'm godfather to John's children, right? I want them to make money. I want them to be happy, right? So it's going to be done. I said, John, yeah, okay, you do it. So I then phoned up Ray and I said, Ray, what's going on? And he said, uh, well, you said you didn't want to do it. I said, I said, we shouldn't do it. Because oh, don't worry, though, it's okay, because I've, I will cut you out. I said, what do you mean, don't worry, you've cut me out? That's not what I said at all. Oh, well, you know, it's only a bit of fun. It's going to be, you know, it's not going to be anything serious. And what actually happened was this. Santilli was realizing that he got to a point where, in his head, there's a statute of limitations when somebody can sue somebody, all right, in a commercial field. And he felt that 10 years, I could not sue him. His time's up, right? The other thing that he realized was, is he sold this film as a genuine 1947 film to Fox on contract. He signed the document to say, this is a 1947 film. 
He even registered it at the US Library of Congress as a 1947 film. And that's how he proved to Fox that it's genuinely 1947. I don't know what it is, but it's 1947. You make your mind up what it is. It might be an alien, it might not be. You decide. I'm guaranteeing it's a 1947 film, right? Big mistake. Because what he didn't realize is that there is no statute of limitations for a fraud. If it was just a business deal, let's suppose I sold you a faulty something and then you complained and then didn't do anything about it and then 10 years ran out and then you tried to sue me, I'd say time's up, right? And that's the law. But not when there's a fraud. Same way that if you were to murder somebody, you're never off the hook. After 10 years, you don't suddenly become innocent, right? If you get caught after 10 years, you're still the murderer, you still go down. If it's a fraud, you still made a fraud and you still go down. How do you cover that if you're Ray? Because you've got a problem. There's this big, big, massive lie hanging there. So how do you do it? You say there was genuine film. It got destroyed, but good news. There's a few frames in the film. Yeah, okay, hands up. We recreated it. But we didn't con anyone because it, there was real film. And you know, I've, I said it's 47 film. Well, there is. So that's okay. You can't sue me for that. There's no fraud, right? Well, that's if you're an idiot and if you don't listen to what you're saying, right? Because if you actually backtrack all of that, it's very simple now. As soon as the Anton Deck film was made, it was in the public domain. I was able to speak. Just for our listeners, those are the stars of the... Yeah, yeah. Anton Deck were, were in, the, in the film. So Anton Deck film came into the public domain which means that I am now able to speak away from the uh, contract that I'd signed. The problem that I faced was that Ray had registered the copyright, unbeknown to me, in the Library of Congress as a cameraman that's not known, right? An ex-military cameraman that nobody knows the name of. And it's definitely 1947 shot. It says on the, on the registration, shot in Italy, or place of origin, Italy. I don't know why that's there. I think it's probably because the law in Italy and the copyright laws is that you could make a film and, and call yourself Chuck Norris. And, uh, and then when somebody says that's not Chuck Norris, they say, well, no, no, it's his cousin. And that's, get away with it, you see. The, the, the law is not the same as it is everywhere else. So maybe that's why. I'm guessing. But more importantly is there is a film lodged at the Library of Congress in America, which is my film. Exactly my film. Every single frame, frame for frame, is my film. So when I went along to the Library of Congress to, to register my film as a 1995 film, they told me they already have this film, and this film is a 1947 film. And I said, no, it isn't. And they said, well, show us, prove it. And do you know what? I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't prove my film was fake, right? Until just by a fluke of nature, Somebody up there loves me because I gave Santilli everything. Everything because I didn't want anyone else to have it so they could spill the beans so that we would then lose the deal, right? Because it could make a lot of money from the documentary we were going to make and the whole thing. So I couldn't risk that. So I gave Santilli everything. We gave him the props. We got rid of all the bodies. We gave him the molds. We gave him everything, all the film. But as, as luck would have it, two tapes got left behind. <laughs>
that's going to wrap up tonight's show, folks. We're sorry to do this to you in the middle of a two-parter, but we're dark next week. We'll be back the week after that with part two of this series. A very special thanks to Spiros Molaris for joining us tonight. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, R-O-D. I'm Hoover. We're always listening to Astonishing Legends. (laughs) My voice in perpetuity. Big fan here from Texas. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) 